links up to that I'm sure we're going to get to. Um, a lot of reading, I think. So uh, people should have some some good stuff to chew on. Yeah, that'd be great. I was just opening up all the filings, and I'm trying to remember where we left off at. It seems like we have a lot of filings to talk about as well. So, yeah, we we were uh, waiting for the um, judge's decision on uh, on the. Uh, oh, geez, I'm blanking on uh, <laughs> <laughs> privilege. Privilege. privilege thank you. That's that's the word. <laughs> Um, and, uh, it looks like, well, who knows though, you know, the, the way things come out in the middle of the night now, maybe, maybe something will drop, but, uh, there's lots of other stuff that that's come up today. I think it's gonna be really good to talk about. Yeah. Well, we can go ahead and start getting into it a little bit. We have a couple hundred people signed up, so I'm sure more people will be joining us. And I think real quick, I'll just try to recap some of all the filings that we have. And, and obviously we got the witness list today. So. For those people that you know been working all day and they haven't been keeping up with this stuff, um, so let's see here. A few days ago, we started getting some motions from the government and from the defense objecting to trial ex- exhibits. So we have the government filing against Michael Sussman. Uh, there wasn't a whole lot in that uh, in that filing that I I think we learned. Um, Sussman is apparently planning or attempting to introduce a bunch of news articles into evidence uh, for the trial, which is pretty outrageous, actually. Once you start digging into these articles, you see that you know some of the same names that we had on, on the Fusion GPS emails last week are some of the same articles that Sussman wants to introduce into the case. So Tom Hamburger is the classic example where they're trying to bring in articles from Tom Hamburger uh, to, to support in some fashion the defense that Sussman wants to put on. So that's pretty laughable. I don't really see that coming in, but we'll, we'll see. Um, and then the government objected to, let's see what else there was. That's pretty much it. I, Yeah, I don't know. I, I think the government kind of raised the, the March 2017 items as well. Um, but obviously we'll talk about that a little bit more in a second here because the defense went and they objected as well to some trial exhibits that John Durham wanted to use. And then there's a few other motions here. So one of the other things that Sussman team did was they're trying to bring in this body of evidence from March 2017 where apparently Andrew McCabe and a few others at a particular meeting at the FBI took some notes. And at this meeting, which is, of course, six months after the charged offense in this case, uh, six months later, they noted that Sussman had brought these allegations on behalf of some client or some unnamed client or something to that effect. So uh, there's been a lot of discussion on that over Twitter or last few days, or I guess today, uh, as it relates to these notes, and are they substantive? Are they relevant? My personal opinion is they're not relevant and they're not exculpatory because what was known to the FBI six months after Sussman lied to the FBI really isn't relevant. It's not. It doesn't go into anybody's state of mind or the procedures and steps that the FBI took, and what ultimately is material about the false statement is that the FBI did undertake procedures 
And we got these notes that, that indicate that the FBI hired two private companies, actually, to investigate these Trump alpha server pings uh, that Sussman brought to the FBI. So uh, obviously the FBI took it seriously. I mean, they jumped on these allegations. They ran them down. They they debunked them. And they had debunked them by February. And then, you know, a month after that, for sure, uh, apparently there was a meeting at the FBI and McCabe had some piece of information where he noted clients. And I believe, uh, I, I forget who pointed that out, but there there is a note where there's an S on that. So McCabe apparently knew that uh, Sussman had brought these allegations on behalf of multiple clients, which is pretty interesting. And McCabe will have to, will have to defend that. And I think it was left open today in a motion uh, about trial witnesses, whether or not McCabe would actually be called to testify, which would be pretty interesting to have him under oath, uh, especially on cross-examination from John Durham. So um, that's the other motion, uh, other article I think it's worth talking about today. So Washington Times, I think they must have had somebody in the courtroom. Um, so they got a hold of the witness list. And let me run through some names here. So Robbie Mook, Mark Elias, Bill Priestamp, and James Baker are all going to be government witnesses. And uh, Technofog has kind of been covering this pretty closely. Uh, we have information already that Mark Elias was uh, subject to a grand jury, so that's not a big surprise. Robbie Mook, uh, we knew had been interviewed. We didn't actually know, I don't think, that he had been before a grand jury, and I think Techno pointed that out uh, a little bit earlier. So that's pretty interesting to have those two testifying um, as government witnesses. And then, let's see here. Yeah, so the government will also try to put on Laura Sego, which is Fusion GPS. Uh, Deborah Fine, which is a Clinton campaign lawyer, which is really interesting. A lot of people were discussing that today. And then a CIA official identified as Kevin B. We don't know who that is. And then a whole host of FBI agents, which will probably go to materiality and the, all the steps they took uh, as a result of these allegations. So then on the defense side, the defense uh, and the Sussman team plan to call Michael Horowitz, the inspector general, which is pretty interesting, uh, former assistant attorney general Mary McCord, and Eric Lichtblau, who was at the center of all this as a reporter for the New York Times, where he was actually uh, interfacing with the, with the FBI early on, uh, Fusion GPS. He was trying to get a story printed in the New York Times. New York Times kind of shut, shot that down, but he's really central uh, to this whole, whole uh, series of allegations. So he's going to be a defense witness. That's pretty interesting. Um, MB, I mean, if you have any thoughts, go ahead and jump in. Kind of get everybody's thoughts and opinions. That one thing we are, are still waiting on, there's supposed to be a ruling on 38 emails that were subject to privilege claims. And we talked about that last week on the last chat. And we're still waiting on a ruling. And a few people have suggested that uh, McCann might be kicked down the ro road because one of the other filings that we got was a motion uh, from the judge yesterday or, or a ruling from the judge uh, excluding some of the evidence that Durham intended to present as relates to some of the third-party conspirators that were not 
um, that are not central to the case, as it were, or are not CC'd on communications from Sussman. Um, so, MB, I mean, if you have any thoughts, go ahead and jump in. Yeah, definitely. I think the uh, I put the link up to the Washington Times story, and everybody should check that out because uh, it. Uh, we we don't have the uh, transcripts from the hearing yet, but uh, that's that it's it's looks pretty solid. And uh, the McCabe stuff, I think, was what was kind of really interesting. And I agree with you that it's really far afield, and I don't know how that's going to get in or what it would even indicate, aside from just creating a bunch of smoke and you know trying to confuse the jury, which maybe is their best move. But uh, the the problem with McCabe is you could, like you said, it's six months later. There's no telling, you know who got that idea in their heads. If it was maybe McCabe personally had some knowledge of that Sussman worked for the Democrats and he just brought that to the table based on his own knowledge. That's, that's a scenario, but there's other scenarios that are just as, you know, possible with that. So uh, without anybody on the stand to explain themselves, it's really going to be hard to, you know, read the tea leaves of what those notes mean, especially since they're handwritten. And if you look at them, it's really, you know, difficult to kind of see some of the nuances of what's actually being written. It's, you know, kind of, some some scrawl going on. Uh, I also put up a link to uh, Hans and Jeff have a really good article in the Epoch Times that uh, should check out, and it's uh, regarding the FBI notes and how that plays in with the timeline. Which is uh, that's where I think things uh, maybe Hans would come up and speak because he's he's really on top of this stuff. And uh, I I think that if you look at how the timing comes together with Trump coming out to talk about being wiretapped at Trump Towers and uh, the FBI getting together and kind of panicking over all this stuff. It really gives you a sense of what's going on, and uh, I think that I think that's really going to come into play. Yeah, I haven't got a chance to read that article. I definitely want to read that. Everybody should check that out. Uh, MB, I think, is linking it to this chat. Yeah, there, there it is. Uh, so Jeff Carlson tweeted that out. Uh, so that's always good. Uh, yeah, as released to Andrew McCabe, I, I don't. There's so many theories, right? I mean, there's there's a million possibilities of how he would have come to that information, or it's entirely plausible that's just thrown off the cuff and just something he inferred. I mean, a random lawyer brings information to the FBI uh, to describe six months later that he's you know he brought some information on behalf of clients. I mean, that doesn't actually tell you much. I mean, that's not you know you can throw that off the cuff a little bit and say, well, he didn't do it himself, right? Obviously. He, he had some clients, but um, it's hard to, you know, you can't really speculate on it because you don't know uh, what a- Andrew McCabe was thinking. But one thing I was thinking about earlier, you know, footnotes 223 and 461 of the IG Horowitz report have some relation to these allegations, and they have some relationship to Rodney Jaffe, I believe, in that it describes a former CHS uh beginning in late July 2016, who brought uh, some allegations to the FBI, specifically a list of Trump associates, which is a description that's come up as it relates to Rodney Jaffe and uh, Michael Sussman and certain information they were bringing around that time. Um, And we have some descriptions. I think Paul Sperry has an article out uh, describing this list of Trump associates and that, um, you know, it's several Trump officials. We don't have a specific number. But apparently, according to Paul Spiria, it includes Carter Page, it includes Manafort, uh, Papadopoulos, and General Flynn, I believe. Um, So it's really interesting to me because what these footnotes describe is that 
uh, sometime in mid to late September 2016, McCabe shuts down this former CHS. And, you know, I, I've, I've thrown this out as speculation before. You know, if this list of Trump associates is, let's say, six associates and four of them are opened investigations for Andrew McCabe and two others are people he's looking at very closely at that time, you know, it should set off alarm bells in his head. Like, there's no way something that fortuitous could just come across your desk. And to have that list of, of Trump associates come through with information relating to their emails, their DNS activities, and, and a whole host of that type of information, that would have to set off red, red flags and alarm bells for Andrew McCabe. Um, but then around that same time, Sussman's coming to the FBI with uh, allegations related to this Trump server. And, you know, I don't know if there's some crossover there or if there's like a series of dots that McCabe would be able to connect to say, okay, well, Sussman and this former CHS are bringing in similar information. They have the same client or the same motivations um, or they're working together. I, I don't know if that's the case. I, I think there's some, I think the ground is solid enough to speculate that Andrew McCabe, you know, there's more to the story about this former CHS. Uh, the footnotes are, are pretty clear that it is something related to Rodney Joffe and Michael Sussman, but we just don't have enough information, I think, to to say conclusively. Hey, Undead, you're, you're breaking up there a little bit. I got gotcha. you. Right. But uh, let me jump in in the meantime real quick and just say that uh, uh, the other, I think, big surprise witness that the defense wanted to put on is I.G. Horowitz as a witness for the defense, which... Um, is very interesting. Um, I think a lot of people are wondering what he's going to bring that's, re- that's going to be relative uh, relevant to the case. Um, I think we'd all like to get Horowitz uh, on the witness stand and have him just be able to ask him all kinds of questions, but I'm sure that's not going to be uh, something that judge is going to allow. Uh, but if he does make it on the stand, that could be, that could be very interesting. Cause I, I don't think, I don't know. I'm sure King has a better idea of what him and actually with the McCabe letter uh, could actually in practice mean for this case uh, as a side to just our bigger thoughts and uh, speculations. You, you ask him now, or are we going to save that for later? <laughs> we can, we can do anything you want, King. If you want to comment on that or, or anything else, go ahead. Let's push that back a little bit. I think the bigger issue, the the bigger uh, news is the uh, court's decision on the outstanding evidentiary uh, motions and issues that uh, came out over the weekend, uh, and it has a major impact on. Uh, on Durham's case and the parameters of the case. Uh, step back a minute. If, if anybody's heard these before, heard me before on these uh, uh, chats, Durham would like to put on a case that to the greatest extent possible avoids the uh, ingrained bias that he thinks he's going to have 
with a D.C. jury. Um, he wants to avoid being in a, in a position where the defense can argue that, look, the only thing that mattered here was the data. And the data was sufficiently serious and sufficiently concerning that as a matter of matter of um, uh, uh, counterintelligence and national security, uh, the FBI had to look at it, and it didn't matter who Sussman's client was. So when he lied about having a client or had he told him a lie about who the client was, it didn't matter. It wasn't material because the data itself drove the investigation. And the fact that Hillary may have been behind some of it or Jaffe may have been behind some of it didn't really matter to the FBI. They took the data and they did what they did with it, ran it to ground as they should have. And therefore, the lie, if he made a lie, wasn't material and he should be acquitted. That's the defense case. And and that plays to a D.C. jury that, by and large, a good percentage of them will probably still hold the view that there was something behind these Trump-Russia collusion allegations. Maybe not enough to bring a criminal case, uh, maybe not enough to get Trump impeached, but there was something there and it needed to be looked at. Uh, that's the mindset of many of the jurors that are going to try this case. To, to avoid that uh, or to, to convince that kind of a jury that this was a lie and it was material, Durham hoped to be able to paint a picture of a scheme, a planned, organized effort with Sussman in the middle, but involving Jaffe and his Georgia Tech researchers, involving the Clinton campaign, and involving Perkins Coie, and involving Fusion GPS, and even Christopher Steele, to create, uh, maybe out of whole cloth, op uh, opposition research that could be fed to the press and fed to the FBI. To, to, and to make that work, it was essential that Sussman lie about where it all originated and who was behind it. Uh, <clears throat> so the, the defense filed motions in limine to exclude from evidence various emails, uh, emails by Fusion GPS, to various members of the press uh, telling the press about this uh, amazing discovery by these technical people that there was this heretofore unknown link between Trump and Russia using a back-channel communication with the Alpha Bank. And here's the data we have experts who've packaged the data and you can look at it and you can talk to them. 
that will prove that that existed. Uh, looking for uh, favorable press on that issue. That's one set of emails. Another set of emails were emails that the uh, Jaffe and his researchers and uh, the uh, uh, tea leaves person, April Lorenz, passed amongst each other as they were putting or packaging the data together to, into something that could be presented to both the FBI and the press uh, and expressing concerns to each other about the data. Uh, some would raise issues like, who's going to believe this? If somebody is experienced and knowledgeable about DNS data, uh, I mean, they will see that this is may look like a red herring. Or what about the possibility that this is all spoofed, that somebody's created the appearance of a communication channel by hacking somebody's computer and spoofing it? That's possible. Or maybe uh, one side uh, creating a, um, a, a, a fake some sort of fake email communication uh, with a form and pass it, passing it to one computer or the other, which launches a sequence of lookup pings back and forth. Uh, that could be what we're looking at. None of that is really negated or addressed in the data we've presented. So you have to be, but you, but. It, there are experts who could see through it. That's a concern. It was that type of email exchange that Durham wanted to use to show, one, the data itself was sketchy. Nevertheless, the plan was to, the orchestrated plan was to package it and present it to the FBI as if it was stellar, as if it were uh, something that legitimately needed to be investigated without telling them the whole story, and two, present it to the press so they can get Hillary good press and dirty up the, uh, her opponent, Trump. Uh, the judge kind of split that baby in two. Judge said, yes, uh, Mr. Durham, you can present the emails that went out to the press because you're not offering them for the truth of what's in them. You're offering them to show this pattern uh, of opposition research publication that uh, the Clinton campaign was behind. And therefore, uh, it's intrinsically part of the offense you've charged. You've shown the reason why uh, Sussman might have lied, and this paints the whole picture. As to the data itself, I'm not going to let you get into that uh, because, one, I've already ruled that the data uh, 
Mr. Durham, you have told me, I'm talking as the judge now, Mr. Durham, you have previously said you're not here to put the data on trial. Uh, you're, going to, you're going to put on evidence of what the FBI did to investigate it, but that's all. You're going to give the jury what the, what the FBI found, but we're not going to have a tr mini trial about how accurate the data was, whether anybody falsified it or cherry picked it or something, did something bad to it to intentionally mislead the FBI. That's not going to be part of this case. And because I've already said that, I'm not going to let you put all these emails that are hearsay uh, back and forth between the researchers and Jaffe uh, because they've really addressed the issue, issue of how reliable and how valid is the data. Uh, there is an exception to the hearsay rule that you, that you say they can come in under. Uh, that would be they are uh, not hearsay. They're an exception to the hearsay because there are communications by members of a joint venture or a, a conspiracy, not necessarily a criminal conspiracy, but a, a, a group of people operating towards a common goal, uh, that goal being to present this data to the press and to the FBI, regardless of how valid it is. Uh, that, on paper, that does sound like a, a joint venture type conspiracy that would apply and, and create an exception to the hearsay rule, but you're getting the trial so far afield of the essential issues. Did he lie and was it material that it could confuse the jury? So I'm not going to let you do it. Uh, I'm going to exercise my discretion to keep that out. So J Durham got one wing clipped substantially, but did keep the other one intact. That is the one that gets his evidence about the uh, communications to the press. Yeah, that's a good summary. Um, and if anybody hasn't hadn't, hasn't had a chance to read that, you should definitely check out the docket and, and pull that up. Um, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of nuances to what the judge actually ruled, uh, as King just laid out. I mean, certain statements are going to be allowed in. Um, it would have been really nice to get some of these co-conspirator statements uh, that Durham has laid out and get those into the into evidence, but. I don't think Durham really needs it. I mean, this is really just a simple false statement charge. Um, so Sussman lied to the FBI. That's really not in dispute at all anymore. Uh, there's a lot of evidence to that effect. And as King pointed out, I mean, Baker's going to go on the witness stand and Baker's going to say that Sussman testified or, or um, asserted that he was not representing anybody. And if Baker is shaky at all, then all these other prior consistent statements and notes are going to come into the body of evidence. That's basically what the judge laid out. So if Baker doesn't remember, then we have some handwritten notes that were taken contemporaneously around that time. And we have a text message um, 
which is going to come in from the day before of this meeting, which is just explicit. There's no question about it. Sussman lied. Then it goes into materiality. Is this lie, the, the inclusion or the omission of information, does that change a decision at the FBI? And it, uh, uncontrovertibly, it does. That's, that's the threshold of materiality. You know, does it change somebody's decision? And it, it absolutely does. Because if the FBI knew uh, conclusively, you know, with no suspicion, you know, conclusively knew that Clinton was the source of this information or that Clinton was sending Sussman to the FBI with information, it would have prompted questions, right? You're 60 days from an election. You know, the FBI would have said, whoa, 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 let's slow down here and let's go back. You know, give me all the sourcing. Who have you been talking to? Where'd you get the data? And, you know, what type of corroboration can you give us? And of course, that's why Sussman lied, right? Because if it didn't matter, Sussman would have just told him the truth. Because Sussman knew that to get his objectives obtained, he had to tell them he was not representing anybody. He couldn't tell them the truth to get what he wanted to get. So it's material in Sussman's mind. It's material in Sussman's mind for him to lie because otherwise he would have just told the truth. Not to beat that up. I don't know if that's confusing or not, but that's the way I, I would certainly think of it. Um, so, yeah, a lot of good points there. MB, I don't know if you want to jump in with any, anything else on that. I, I just had one thing for King that the defense is also not allowed. Well, if, if the defense decides to say that the data is true, that is it correct that that then opens the door that uh, Durham can come back and say, well, wait a minute. Now, now let's talk about if that is correct or not. Yes. He has said, the judge has said this several times that uh, uh, you understand Mr. Sussman and your lawyer team. If you try to make the case that there is, that the data is correct, it's uh, uh, not, rigged in any way it's reliable uh i'm going to let the prosecution come back and show that may not be the case so you will if you if you open the door i'm going to let the prosecution come back and we'll try that issue uh that you tell me you don't want to try king i I wanted to ask you another question here so We've been waiting a few days on this privilege ruling for the 38 emails. Now, based on what the judge ruled uh, yesterday, I believe it was, uh, that a lot of these communications are going to be excluded from trial, there's sort of a question out there from a few people whether the judge is going to pass on this altogether um, because he might indicate that these emails are not going to be relevant to the trial. But do you think he, he should rule on the privilege claim itself and then you know, say, Mr. Dermy, you're entitled to these uh, emails that were subject to grand jury subpoena, but they're not going to be admitted into this trial. Is that the most likely scenario that you see, or do you see the judge actually potentially kicking this down the road and not ruling on it? Yeah, your guess is as good as mine. Uh, some judges will hit the privilege issue head on and decide it, even though most 
or all of the emails may not come in under the judge's ruling from yesterday. Uh, but because, I mean, Durham made it clear that he needs this privilege issue decided because he's still got an investigation ongoing. And it's going to be key towards what evidence he can present to the grand jury going forward. So it needs to be decided one way or the other uh, for Durham to proceed. But as far as this trial is concerned, the judge very well could decide that uh, the privilege issue as to these 38 documents or 38 emails I'm looking at is moot because I've already ruled none of these emails come into evidence. But since we haven't seen the emails, we can't even say that. We just have to cross our fingers and hope he says something. Now, he, he would still have to rule on Laura Sego um, because there's technically privilege claims over her testimony, right? Yes. Uh, one witness is copied on one or more of the emails he's, he's reviewing. That's Laura Sego, who's an employee, a former employee of Fusion GPS. Um, the Clinton campaign has asserted a privilege as, I'm sorry, Jaffe has asserted a privilege as to the meeting Jaffe attended with uh, Sussman and Elias and Laura Sego, claiming that he believed he was there talking to his lawyers in confidence, that Ms. Sego was a consultant of the law firm and therefore everything he said and to the lawyers and that they said back to him was privileged. So the, if she's going to be called to testify about what was said at that meeting, the privilege issue will have to be decided. I don't see the judge deciding that in the abstract until he hears uh, Ms. Sego's testimony. Uh, he, we, he may decide the privilege as it relates to her email communications uh, that Jaffe got a copy of. But we don't know yet. Gotcha. Thank you. Uh, MB, I don't know if you have anything else you want to get into. Otherwise, I might open up for a couple questions. Um, I was going to throw up the uh, Wall Street Journal article. I know that's a little bit off the current topic, but uh, that's another subject of today's discussion. So uh, I'll get that up. If anybody hasn't seen it, it's, it's kind of about the evolution of the Steele dossier. Uh, not, not this particular court case, but uh, it's interesting. Yeah, everybody should, should definitely check that out. I know some people have expressed some concerns with that. Um, definitely check out Hans. I think Hans has some really good thoughts on that article and, and some good breakdown, but, um, I guess I had a different kind of opinion. I thought it was I thought it was a pretty good article. Um, so this is specifically written about Danchenko, Dolan, and Galkina, and there's certainly other topics to write about, right? I mean, they could easily talk about Sergey Milian and the horrendous deal that they did to him. Uh, even the Wall Street Journal, you know, if they're going to write an article about Danchenko, they could have make made some amends by 
correcting the record on Million tonight. So that would have been nice. Um, obviously, there's a lot uh, to write about Christopher Steele and what he did with the Steele dossier and what he did with any information that Dan Chago gave him or didn't give him uh, and what fabrication, fabrications that Steele did. Uh, there's a lot to say on that topic as well. But uh, for this specific article, uh, being that it's titled Three Friends Chatting and it's specific about Dan Shanko, Dolan, and, and Galkina, I thought it was good. I thought, you know, if there's a, a regular nine to five American out there that has not been following us at all, uh, I thought that was a really well done article. I think there were a couple discrepancies where they didn't quite get the dates right, but um, it is very thorough. It's a very long article. Uh, I think they, they obviously put a quite a bit of time into it in my opinion at least and um you know i hope they write more i i saw uh svetlana tweet out i mean yeah these guys were kind of involved in some some bad reporting before but you know when they write something good uh i'm gonna praise them for that and uh hopefully they do more i mean there's there's a million other topics for them to write about right and i don't want to i don't want to bash them when they finally write a decent article um i want to encourage them i want to want them to write more so all right um take a question here or a comment uh dirty tricks what's up man Nope. It's not. Uh, let's go to. Hey, Elizabeth. How's it going? Hey, Elizabeth. Hello, everybody. Uh, great topic. Great discussion uh, tonight, guys. Um, I follow most of this pretty closely, but nowhere near to the extent that you do. So uh, my question is, you were mentioning that um, Mook and uh, who was the other one will be witnesses for the prosecution. Um, I can't remember now who the other person was, but um, are those are those people going to be? Oh, uh, Elias. Are they going to be cooperating yep. witnesses or are they hostile witnesses? And whichever it is, how will that affect uh, the trial and the uh, uh, the outcome? And I'll, I'll turn off and listen. Thanks. Yeah, it's a great question. When I first saw those names come up in the story, I thought for sure they would be defense witnesses, right? Um, but I imagine what I think the the most likely scenario is that Durham's bringing these witnesses in for very specific purposes. Uh, Robbie Mook, we have testimony where um, he was not aware. Well, I guess that, that part's not even relevant. I, I don't know. You know, I don't know what they're going to say. I imagine the purposes are going to be very limited. Um, I think there's a lot of speculation out there that Mark Elias himself might face some criminal liability. So it is really interesting that he's willing to sit before a grand jury and now, uh, sit for a trial and testify uh, about something, and I, I don't know. I don't know the questions that are going to be asked to him, uh, but him and Robbie Mook testifying. Obviously, that's 
that is pretty interesting. I don't think it's going to be a broad discussion. Um, you know, they're not going to be friendly witnesses, but Durham's not going to let them be hostile witnesses. He's not going to let them talk about how Trump had all these connections with Russia or anything like that. It's going to be a really narrow focus, um, in my opinion, at least. MB or, or King, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I do have a few. Um, there, there are actually three witnesses in that category. There's Robbie Mooks, uh, Mark Elias, and a woman by the name of Debbie Fine, who was, I think her title was Assistant General Counsel of the Hillary campaign in charge of special projects. Uh, let me start with Mook. Uh, Mook has been cooperating with, the, with Durham, we know, because he's given statements. Uh, he signed an affidavit in support of the Clinton campaign's motion or to intervene in the case to assert attorney-client privilege as to everything that Fusion GPS did. And the affidavit basically said, in very general terms, uh, the campaign's purpose in retaining Perkins Coie was to get legal services in anticipation of of litigation, and I understood that they would be uh, associating a contractor uh, like Fusion GPS to help them do the research needed to give us the campaign legal advice. Uh, that kind of tells me that Mook's role will be very limited uh, to establish the attorney-client relationship between the campaign, and Perkins Coie. And in general, de- describe in very general terms what Perkins Coie's job was, what Fusion's job was relative to Perkins Coie to show that, yeah, there was a attorney-client relationship involving Sussman uh, and that the Clinton campaign was the client. Elias would testify, he testified at the grand jury, and he would probably say the same thing, but more elaborate as to what Mook said. A lot of his affidavit or declaration that was filed on the privilege issue was redacted, so we don't know what all he had to say on the record there. But I imagine he's going to be repeating a lot of it <clears throat> in front of the jury uh, when Durham calls him uh, to establish, one, that there was an attorney-client relationship. He was the lead lawyer. Sussman was on the case, too. This is how we build the file. <clears throat> These are the bills we sent out. These are the timesheets that Sussman filled out showing he was working for the, the campaign. The uh, the most interesting one that we know nothing about, really, is Debbie Fine. Um, she's listed as a witness for the prosecution. 
being a, being a lawyer in charge of special projects is kind of a hint that she knew about or had some some very high level executive role in what I call the and what they called the Trump Swift Boat Project, whereby the Clinton campaign kind of orchestrated a a hit, an opposition research driven hit on Trump involving his relationships with Russia. And if she was involved as a as the leader of the special projects group in overseeing the broad parameters of the Swift Boat project against Trump, then she can paint the big picture. This is what we were trying to do. These are the lawyers we hired to do it. These are the contractors we knew the lawyers were associating to do it with. And it kind of paints the broad conspiracy picture that the judge says he doesn't want to hear. But uh, the Durham may be able to get by with doing it with a uh, uh, the clients, the Clinton campaign as client person in charge of the whole scheme. It's good stuff. MB, did you have any thoughts you wanted to add on that? Uh, I was just thinking that uh, when uh, Mark Elias submitted his uh, motion to uh, join the case, he submitted like a, I think it was like seven or eight pages of mostly redacted uh, material. Uh, it, and uh, I think he wanted the judge to review it uh, privately. And I was really curious what might have been under that, under, under those redactions. And because we, we know he was in front of the grand jury, so they assumedly have, you know, have him locked down with, with the testimony they need. And I guess my point is, he, he's making a big stink about, you know, it, just what, what was available in that, in that motion was very uh, anti-Trump and sort of spygate centric. Um, so I guess it could be dangerous for both sides. Like who, what's he going to stay on stage? Is he going to stay right on message? Is everything, you know, is it going to be a, you know, 15 minute uh, examination? That's going to be it. Or, you know, could that be a place where the door kind of gets open because, the defense goes, you know, whoever goes into it, but they, they start talking more about the, the big picture Spygate stuff. You know, I thought I saw the judge rule that that motion had to be unredacted and refiled. Am I misremembering that? And it's still redacted right now, but unless okay. it's a separate, unless there's a separate entry. Okay. I, I might be wrong. I, I thought the judge had said, no, you gotta, you got to unredact and, and just file this thing, but it, it was weird. I just had this kind of feeling of like, judge, let me explain a few things. If I could just sit down with you, we could clear this whole thing up. It's like, <laughs> I don't think it's how it works. Yeah. I mean, what kind of, I don't know. I, I can't imagine saying that to a judge or, or filing something and just saying, judge, if you want to see this, you got to make a private appoint, appointment with me in your chambers. Like it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Let's see who else we got here. 
Um, Mitt, what's going on, man? Hey, uh, um, were you guys talking to me? This Mitt. Yeah. How's hey, it good. Going? How are you guys doing? Thanks for uh, throwing me a mic. So uh, earlier uh, yeah. today in this corner, um, I think someone published some tweets of Trump with the reaction from the FBI. I think you guys talked a little bit about it, about how they were starting to panic a little bit. And uh, a lot of stuff was flying back and forth when he started throwing around the spy word. And how about that Obama guy? He's a bad guy. And I think that was all a result of uh, Admiral Rogers and it's been described as his sprint over to, you know, uh, uh, Trump Tower. But I'm trying to figure out what what was the uh, um, the onus? What was what was the thing that tipped over the apple cart for Rogers? Because I know way back in 2016, he knew there was some uh, 702 violations taking place and private contractor issues and stuff. And I think he slapped some hands and, you know, said, hey, you can't do that anymore. And then again in October a whistleblower came forward and said, Hey, I know you think you handled it, but you didn't handle it. And there's some pretty significant stuff still happening. And that caused him to actually uh, head over to the Fisk and finally had to tell them, because I think he was pressured into it once that whistleblower came out. And, uh, but, you know, unluckily the Fisk had already like literally moments before issued the FISA on Carter page. So he knows there's a lot of issues, but what, what do you think it was? What did he see that caused him to bang it on over to Trump and really kind of lay it out on the line and say, Hey, you've got some problems. You should, you should get out of here. Yeah. So it's not compelling anymore that Rogers actually said anything important. Um, I know there's been public reporting to that effect. I know it's been out there for a long time. Um, I think Walker Flyer put out a thread a couple weeks ago and that, um, you know, the, the whole idea that Trump moved his headquarters because Rogers gave him a heads up about um, surveillance at Trump Tower. I, I don't think that's compelling anymore. I think from what I recollect, Walker kind of laid out uh, Trump was already going to move or, or um, the facilities were inadequate where he was at um, or, or whatever the case was. Like, I think that was already in motion. And I would also say, I mean, nothing's developed out of that story. I mean, Michael Rogers, you know, if he thought there was surveillance, like where's he been for the last six years? He hasn't right. come forward at all. Um, you know, there's been no corroboration of that, no subsequent reporting. So I, I don't know, you know, obviously I can't discount it or anything. I can't debunk it, but I, I'm not convinced that Rogers actually said, you know, anything uh, nearly as substantive as what's, as what's been reported. Um, not to throw cold water on that, but I, do you, I just do you think that was the basis the for? Do you think that was the basis for Trump coming out that next day and firing off? You know, just really throwing the spy word in everybody's faces, or do you think he had another basis beside what uh, Rogers had said to him? There's so I mean, there's so much stuff going on that, around that time. I can't say for sure. I mean. Yeah. He had to be picking up some information. He had to have some ideas, given the number of leaks, right? I mean, the, her, the first three months of his administration, he basically had a leak every single day, like a major yeah. leak. Um, so he had to have some idea that people were, you know, if not just leaking, like people were listening to conversations. And, and I don't know. I, you know, I, I, I can't speculate one way or the other. Maybe somebody was speculating to him and then, you know, he kind of ran with it, I, or maybe somebody gave him some thought, concrete I thought of information. It because of the, 
I only thought of it because of the current topic of the Alpha Bank stuff. And I, he knew about the 702 stuff for so long. Like you said, he'd been around for six years. I'm just wondering if he ran into anything about the Alpha Bank uh, story or if he got some information on that. And that's what caused him to, you know, to actually finally mosey up there and say something. You're talking about Rogers? Yeah. Did he get it from somebody else? Did he bump into it? Did he hear something? I wonder if it was the Alpha Bank thing that caused that to happen. Yeah, I can't speculate one way or the other. I can. I, I I think if the if it if it was the Alpha Bank stuff that uh, triggered Trump into that tweet, uh, it more than likely came from the CIA and Mike Pompeo. See, Trump's not a guy that keeps secrets, though, especially about something like that. Like it. I have to imagine if Trump had some hard information, like he wouldn't be able to resist. Like he would have, he would have pushed yeah. something out, you know, but maybe, maybe he has been sitting on it for, for years now. I think that kind of could add up though, because you're right that if it was, if Rogers came to him and said, Hey, look, the FISA court's spying on you, then Trump's going to go out 10 minutes later and say the FISA court's spying on me. So it could be that if Pompeo came with them, came to him with just sort of the allegations that Sussman made that were a little bit more, they, they probably didn't have a lot of details to him either. And who knows what, you know, Pompeo was actually told, but that could be just a more, Hey, you know, Trump tower, they, they say they got some, this DNS stuff and whatever, and Trump wouldn't understand it either. So that might actually line up. Yeah. Then that's exactly what I was thinking. That's what I wanted to hear, but I like the CIA version that that sounds better. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Hey, Ship, how's it going? Not too bad. <laughs> I, uh, on, on the move thing, I, I remember looking at that, you know, quite a while ago. You know, my recollection is, and I don't have my materials in front of me, the timing of that was after the election. It was during the transition. And the transition headquarters were moved from the Trump Tower to the uh, New Jersey golf course. And the reason for that was once he was president-elect, a whole new set of Secret Service priorities took over. And the reality was they couldn't block off streets of Manhattan around Trump Tower while he was there. And they couldn't allow the president-elect to be in a high-rise office building in the middle of Manhattan when car bombs could park next to it. It just was an unsustainable location for the Secret Service. So the plan to move to New Jersey, which had a you know big defensible perimeter, and and Trump wanted to stay on one of his own properties where he was comfortable. I mean that that was simply the plan. It took a little while to execute that plan, but leaving Trump Tower had nothing to do with uh, Admiral Rogers' visit. That was already in the works, and it was because of just the Secret Service could not allow the president-elect to do business in a high-rise office building in downtown Manhattan. Yeah, good stuff. Uh, let's take another question here. Uh, <laughs> Golden Advice, what's up, man? Hey, how you all doing this evening? I just want to... Pretty good, how are I'm you? I'm doing great. I just want to speak to uh, uh, how... Admiral Rogers and there are many like him have just kind of disappeared and fallen off the, you know, of the public square over the last six years. And 
given the amount of pressure and we know the, the depths of uh, utter corruption that has taken over our government, it just feels like, you know, where's the courage? Did people, what kind of pressure is being applied to people that were once so into the weeds and this stuff? Uh, you know, you go back to, you go back to Admiral Rogers, you go back to Rosemary Colliers, who, who, who issued the Pfizer report. And it just, all this stuff has just been whitewashed and none of these people have ever spoken up and, and there's many of them. I'm just giving a couple examples, but I think that's what disturbs me the most, especially in retrospect, six years later, as we look around and see what's, what's happening around us. And uh, I can't help but speculate what kind of enormous pressure some of these people are under. And I, th I don't think we'll ever know, you know, but it, it sure does make, make you wonder. So I just wanted to uh, put that out there and, uh, I'll go ahead and mute myself and, and listen to y'all again. Yeah. Thanks for the comments. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to make, make heads or tails of it one way or the other, I think. Um, let's go to Fauci. Fauci. How's it going, man? Hey, what's going on guys? Hey, um, can much. you hold on a second? <laughs> We got all day. No worries, brother. Sorry, man. My wife is calling me. Like, right as you... Okay, so, uh, hey, you guys know I um, follow Mark Elias pretty closely, and you're just talking about him, and so I've been trying to keep up. I'm putting kids to bed and stuff, but he, uh, he tweeted something kind of cryptic a few months back. You guys might remember it. Something about, there's so much I wanted to say for the last 24 hours. And I just can't say it, but just let me leave it at this. I'm still with her. Um, obviously, obviously, that's, uh, you know, kind of cryptic and who the hell knows what he was talking about. But now that we know he's, you know, we, we learned since then that he's on the grand jury and um, he is now going to be testifying for the prosecution. Does anybody have any thoughts on what that might have meant um, when he did that, that's it. I'll hang up. You know, all of these people have been before the grand jury. Just because we don't know about it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Durham would not be putting somebody like Elias or who was the other one that came out today, Kimberly? What's her name? The uh, with Open Society, the George Soros group who's on his witness list. Debbie Fine, I think. Debbie Fine, Debbie Fine. It, you know, they've all been for the grand jury. You don't put potentially hostile witnesses on the stand during your case in chief unless you've already locked them in to testimony under oath before the grand jury, and you've got that transcript right there next to you as you answer, ask them questions that you know what the answers should be based upon the grand jury testimony. Yeah, these people had individual conversations, maybe, with Sussman. That's what they're going to testify about. That's what's going to be asked about. And it's kind of a misnomer, I think, sometimes, or misunderstood reference to call somebody a government witness. Yeah, you, you don't have a choice. You know, I used to send subpoenas to hostile witnesses all the time. It didn't make them friendly to me because they were on my witness list and, and they were appearing during the government's case in chief. Yeah, they were just witnesses. They they knew stuff that I wanted the jury to hear. They didn't have to be friendly. 
so, you know, to see individuals like Elias and Fine and whoever else turn up on on uh, Durham's witness list, not surprising. Those are the people that Sussman would have been in communication with. They can testify about things that Sussman said, things that Sussman wrote and sent to them that they received, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, matters like that. Just, I, I saw also a tweet a little while ago about Horowitz showing up, and he's going to testify as to what the IG did. It's like, no, he's not. He's going to testify about people he talked to and documents he saw or sent, not the conclusions of the inspector general. Those are irrelevant. The only thing that witnesses can testify to is facts. In the off, off my soapbox. Back to the crowd. It's good stuff. I like it. Um, I see we have Fool Nelson chat. I don't know, Fool, if you wanted to speak tonight. I love to hear your thoughts on anything that you want to speak about, too. Um, let's see who else we have here. I saw Hans. What's up, here. man? I'd like to hear from Hans. Yeah, he's got. Uh, he's at his desktop right now. He's not able to speak. Uh, that one guy. What's up, man? Hey guys, how's everyone doing tonight? Pretty good. How are you? Oh, good, man. Great chat as always. Appreciate the chance to speak. Just want to say thank you. Um, I have a quick question and sort of a comment. Um, you know about Sussman intending to use the March 2017 notes, saying that McCabe reference that Sussman was representing an undisclosed client and how the FBI knew that at the time. Uh, you know, if I were defending Sussman, there's obvious value in showing that Sussman's, you know, at issue false statement couldn't influence the investigation because the FBI knew that it wasn't true. Um, but the timeline is where I, I sort of have the disconnect because the FBI disproved the alpha allegations in February 2017 per Horowitz. So, um, that's my comment. My question is, I'd just love to get everyone's thoughts on the significance of these notes, given their timing, because from my perspective, they just seem too late on the timeline to impact how the FBI, FBI actually conducted their investigation prior to February. Uh, all right, let me let me respond to that. I, I mean, those notes are, are interesting based upon their content, based upon the time frame, based upon the people involved. You know, this is two months after Trump has taken office. This is, you know, in, in. You know, and, and remember, he wasn't supposed to win. Much of what they had been doing would never see the light of day if, you know, he hadn't won. So I think what you have going on in mid-March is a Department of Justice that in some measure, especially led by some of the transition people from the Trump campaign, doesn't know entirely what the FBI has been up to for nine months. And because, like, for example, an FBI counterintelligence investigation is not typically overseen by a prosecutor because it's not a criminal case. It's not a criminal investigation. The FBI tends to keep those to themselves. They have to come to the Department of Justice to get certain things, but the day-to-day evolution of a counterintelligence investigation stays within the confines of the FBI. So what I see the timing and, and the roster of people involved, notably Scott Schools, 
If you don't know, I'll get to him in a minute. This is a... Hey, guys! What have you all been up to for the last month that you need to tell us about? Now, this is also two weeks before Jim Comey stands up in Congress and says, you know, the FBI is investigating the campaign of Donald Trump for, you know, counterintelligence and criminal reasons and connections to the Russian government. So all of this sort of, you know, swirling controversy that's below the surface, but maybe about to come out into public is is taking place. And oh, by the way, Sussman had walked into the CIA just a few weeks before with the same Alpha Bank story. And it's like, okay, FBI, what have you guys been up to? What do you know and what do you suspect so that everybody in the room knows? And the fact that it is led by Andy McCabe, the number two guy in the FBI, pretty much tells you all you need to know about you know, how consequential that meeting was. Now, those notes specifically about what Sussman said nine months earlier in a sit-down with Baker about whether he had a client or didn't have a client, that strikes me as too cute by half. That strikes me as somebody has game-planned that out in advance and decided, you know, we need a little cover here. And, and, and that was a talking point that the FBI brought into that meeting and, and was dutifully noted and written down by a couple of DOJ participants. Um, now, Scott Schools is, at that time, was the senior most civil service employee, in other words, career employee, of the Department of Justice. He, was, he, he had taken the place of a, a legendary guy named David Margolis, who had died, I think, in 2016. Margolis had been with the department for over 40 years, 45 years. Um, and Schools took his place. He was, Schools was a, uh, an assistant deputy attorney general meaning uh, he was one of the attorney general's, like, 12 hand-picked main assistants, um, the deputy attorney general, number two person, uh, who I, at that time, I guess that was Dana Boente before, because it was before Rod Rosenstein was confirmed in April, and Jeff Sessions was the attorney general. And Dana Boente's in this meeting, so the deputy attorney general is in the meeting, and, well, yeah, the deputy attorney general is in the meeting because the attorney general already recused himself. So, so Sessions couldn't be there. And so you, in effect, have the top, you have the acting attorney general in the meeting, because this is before Rosenstein gets confirmed, as well as several of his top assistants. So this is not an operational meeting. These people, you know, function above the operational level. This isn't Crossfire Hurricane Team telling us, tell us what you know. This is... What has the FBI been doing? What does DOJ know about it? And what are we going to do next? It's pretty interesting, Ship. I, uh, um, I think you have, have some good points there. I, I mean, as it relates to the, the March meeting, that, as the original question kind of got into it, and as Chip kind of covered there, I mean, it, it it's really unusual to me. And the amount of emphasis that the Sussman team put 
on that March meeting is really unusual because there's just there's just no way it can be relevant to a conversation that was had six or seven months earlier um, when Sussman took the allegations to the FBI. And obviously, I mean, the fact that Sussman lied is not in dispute. We have the text message, uh, the record's compelling that Sussman did lie. So, you know, the defense team makes the point of, well, how could McKay have, have known unless there was, you know, notes taken contemporaneously with that meeting way back in September that noted this client. So, so the Sussman team is saying, well, there's got to be some missing evidence here from that original meeting that clued McCabe into the fact that Sussman was there on behalf of clients. And there's just too many other variables out there. And this investigation had been run to ground by then, by a couple months at least. And the FBI totally debunked these allegations. So it's, I, I, I can't really make sense of the strategy of uh, even going into this meeting because, you know, Sussman did lie. And it was material. And it was material because the FBI hired two private companies to investigate these claims. Uh, they spent, you know, however much money they had to spend, and they, they fully investigated these claims. And then when it was done, you know, weeks later, McCabe somehow knew that Sussman was there on behalf of clients, or it's totally a throwaway line. I mean, if a lawyer comes and brings information to the FBI, obviously Sussman didn't gather it. So, just making the inference that Sussman was there on behalf of clients seems like a totally, you know, justifiable throwaway line of, oh, okay, well, he's, you know, brought this information on behalf of clients. Like, that's, you'd have to get McCabe on the stand uh, kind of testifying about that, which would be a really interesting cross-examination cross by Durham, I have to imagine. Um, so I don't know if anybody else has thoughts or ship if you want to jump in on that yeah well the, the problem though with even putting McCabe on the stand is the question is I mean you draw it, 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 unless Sussman really wants to hear the or unless Durham really wants to hear the answer and knows what the answer is presumably the objection would be hearsay I, I mean who McCabe heard it from somebody who was that person you know and then who did that person so you'd have to get back to the point where somebody talked to Sussman and Sussman said I'm here for a client but the only person Sussman talked to was Baker. So, so uh, who introduced into the stream of the conversation that Sussman was there for a client? It has to be Baker. If, it doesn't, if it's not Baker, then it's only hearsay from somebody who wasn't there with Sussman. I kind of made this point earlier, but... I mean, the only other nexus that we have that we know about McCabe is this former CHS that's noted in footnotes 223 and 461 of the I.G. Horowitz report, where it references this former CHS who brought a list of Trump associates. And this list has been subject of a few stories now where, uh, you know, Joffe and people connected to him compiled a whole bunch of email addresses and data from public and non-public databases. And they took that and they brought it to the FBI. And then McCabe, in mid to late September, shuts down this former CHS. He doesn't want anybody speaking to him, doesn't want any more information. Now, this list of Trump associates appears to really closely mirror 
the people that Crossfire Hurricane is focused on. So it's Carter Page, it's Manafort, it's Papadopoulos, it's General Flynn, and a couple others that were the focus of uh, negoti- or investigation at the time. So I don't, I don't know if, if it so closely tracks Crossfire Hurricane, McCabe would have to connect that to the Steele dossier that he was getting. And also, depending on the content of that list of Trump associates, he would seemingly have to connect it to what Michael Sussman brought him just in that same time frame, right? Because uh, Sussman came on September 19th, I believe. And then, you know, we don't have a specific date on when McCabe shut this former former CHS down, but it has to be within a couple of days of this, of this meeting. So um, I don't know if that's impetus for him to shut down the former CHS is the realization or the connection of the two. Um, but that's another potential avenue. And, and you know, there's a hundred other avenues of how McCabe would come to that information or um, maybe he has no information whatsoever. So I, I don't know, not to belabor the point, but. To, to add to that, I think, we have a decent idea of what Durham knows just based on the indictment by itself. Uh, I mean, paragraph 41, a uh, Sussman advised the former employee of the CIA that he represented a client that was in January 31, 2017. So I think we, at, at least that how I read it, we have an idea of how, what Durham thinks what happened. Sussman went to the CIA. He was more forward about representing a client. I'm presuming because it was after the election um, and at that point he probably was representing a Joffrey alone. Um, but at, at that point, I think, I, I guess that's what I think is, is the answer to the question. The, there's a possibility that McCabe is more involved in all of this than meets the eye because of his, kind of crazy decision on the surface to shut assuming it's Joffe, to shut Joffe down, cut him off from Crossfire Hurricane. When Joffe is producing evidence that Crossfire Hurricane could use. But for some reason, McCabe doesn't want Joffe connected to that investigation. So Given the fact that McCabe doesn't want Jaffe connected to the investigation, Jaffe got has stuff he wants to give to the investigation. What do you do? You find an in, intermediary. Uh, it could be this whole thing points to McCabe manipulating who's who's the crossfire hurricane people hear from. I don't know, but that's given the way that guy works, uh, it's possible. It, it seems to me that it's uh, absolutely unbelievable that you have all these bigwigs from FBI, DOJ sitting down, hashing all this stuff out. And I think Ship's point that maybe this entire in, entire affair was just a CYA uh, attempt, kind of like Susan Rice writing the, uh, you know, by the book email on her last day in office. I think it was Susan Rice. Um, but, you know, they're talking about crown materials, which was obviously Christopher Steele, and they're talking about Sussman. So it's all on the table. It's like, how, how are you guys who are, you know, the, the elite investigators in the country not putting together that you're getting fed a line of BS from 
you know, several directions and it's all pointing in the same direction. That's too good to be true. That That's just no one apparently you know, said, hey, wait a minute, we're being played here. How is that possible? Well, and that's an, you raise a very interesting point that we don't have the answer to. And that is, is this a meeting that was prompted by the FBI to get right with justice in order, you know, got Trump people coming into justice? Let's let's uh, get our cards out on the table and explain ourselves so that, you know, we don't look like a bunch of partisans who were out to take Trump down. But we were actually acting in good faith, pursuing leads that we had a good faith belief in. Or was this justice calling the FBI on the carpet saying, what in the fuck have you guys been doing? We don't know. We don't know who, at least I can't tell, who was responsible for that group of people to all be in a room together on that day to go over this. Somebody on Twitter today posted, uh, reposted uh, the struck page email exchange from the day before which was a Sunday they came to work early Sunday morning and worked all day kind of packaging what they were going to tell justice and the triggering event was Trump's tweet about his wires at Trump Tower being hacked by Obama. That's that's what justice wanted to hear an answer to. And, and for what it's worth, at least uh, Exhibit C uh, to Sussman's briefing, uh, it, it's the attachment for the Outlook uh, meeting for this, and it was organized. It does look like by uh, Tashnaya Uhar from the DOJ. So maybe it was the DOJ, you know, telling the FBI to come and answer for what it's been doing. Now, now that would make sense to me because you've got the acting attorney general sitting in the room and the FBI is the one doing the briefing. And the only person missing is Comey. And they all work for the acting attorney general. Comey doesn't, the FBI directors don't think so, but they do. So between the two sides, who could summon who? Andy McCabe isn't going to summon the acting attorney general to listen to him. The acting attorney general is going to summon somebody from the FBI of senior status to come explain to me what you know and what you've been doing. And this is, frankly, this is what Sessions should have done before he recused himself. Sessions should have satisfied himself that there was a bona fide criminal or counterintelligence investigation underway and that his recusal was necessary. That, that's my question, though. Was this a call you on the carpet, uh, tell us what you've been doing meeting, or was this a we know, well, we, we've all got our hands dirty here because how many FISA warrants had, had uh, been passed by in this in this interim? So the DOJ is not operating completely in the dark here. They, they're part of this, too, and that was steel stuff. So it's all part and parcel. Um, so, you know, exactly what kind of meeting was this and, and was it maybe, okay, let's get on the same page and go by the party line as opposed to, you know, let's, let's do a fact finding. Yeah. D- DOJ's involvement in that would have been less meaningful 
I mean, you you have you have operational people in the in the OI Office of Intelligence Review, who you know review the applications being made by the FBI, and and, and but once they pass them, once that office says okay, you're good to go, the approvals after that are just pro forma, and the approvals are simply meant to signify nothing other than this was done through the ordinary channels. You know, I, I've tried to make people understand this. There's 1,800 FISAs done in 2016. Anybody who thinks the Attorney General or Deputy Attorney General or FBI Director read all 1,800, is, uh, it's a fantasy. These things are hundreds of pages long. They wouldn't do anything else every day, 365 days a year, other than read FISAs. They don't. They rely upon the structure that's in place to create these things, to vet these things, and to approve these things. And when all of those boxes are checked, it goes up the chain. But it does not get read, you know, more than two or three levels above where the work's done. Well, they'd, they'd immunized uh, Danchenko at this point, right? So, I mean... There, there has to be. We're talking about investing in the president of the United States here at this yeah, point. Okay. So. Uh, and let me let me let me stop you. I've seen. I've heard this. I've heard references to make the you know the sweetheart deal, Danchenko got. Danchenko, that's not what a proper agreement is. It's not what a queen for a day is. It's not what use immunity is. It's not a deal. He could be prosecuted for everything coming out of that meeting that he could be prosecuted for going into that meeting. The only thing a proper agreement means is that no FBI agent will get on a witness stand and testify to a testify to a jury about what it was Danchenko said in that room that day. In other words, Danchenko can speak freely because his own words are not going to be used against him in a courtroom. That's what you want when you've got a witness in for a proper. You want them to speak freely. So, so the promise is. Agent, you know, Scully will not get in front of a jury and say on January 24th, I interviewed Mr. Danchenko and he said the following. That's what a proper agreement excludes. It does not exclude prosecution for those crimes. The government just has to obtain its evidence from sources other than the defendant's own statements. So I've heard David Laughman gave him a great deal enough times to kind of make me want to pull my hair out over that issue. Hey, Hans, I see your speaker now. I don't know if you want to jump in with anything. Hey, thanks. Yeah, no, um, I, of course, I agree with Ship in terms of, you know, the procedures and the rules and all that, but. You're talking about this Russian guy who one day in January of 2017 has the cops show up at his door and he want to talk to him and he panics. And everything that happens from there, he's kind of under the control of whoever is controlling him. And I don't want to name names right now, but if he's then told by whoever that is, oh, don't worry, Igor, you got queen of the day. You can do whatever you want. Just just trust us. Just do whatever we say. Uh, you know, things can kind of go downhill pretty fast from there. And I kind of suspect that's what happened because he had no incentive of his own volition to lie 
unless he was told, you know, it's all good. You can, you can go ahead. You can lie. It's fine. Honestly, I've, Hans, I've talked to, over the years, I have had some limited involvement in, in Russian organized crime and Eastern European organized crime operations to understand that it is, in many ways, something of a cultural imperative to lie your way out of every situation you find yourself in. It's like always the first reaction. Deny the obvious, blame somebody else. I mean, it happens all the time in a variety of circumstances. Danchenko reacted in exactly the way I would have expected a Danchenko to react because I'd seen it so many times before. Yeah, I think that's right. But let's not discount the um, the 57-page EC on Danchenko's first interview, which is really the only evidence we have. That's the, have. that's the only hard kind of data we have. And what does it say? Well, one of the things that jumped out at me when I first read that is that um, Danchenko's lawyer, who shall remain nameless, kept jumping in uh, whenever Danchenko said anything that, you know, the lawyer wasn't quite happy with. And he was like, eh, Igor, remember, this was... You know, so it was clearly rehearsed what they had done. Now, um, that, of course, raises the question of whether what was rehearsed was rehearsed because it was true or because it was not true. And I don't know whether the lawyer thought it was true or whether it wasn't true, but at a minimum, it was rehearsed. So uh, I, and I don't disagree with Ship at all. But if he's going to lie his way out of a situation, he would have lied at least twice. He would have lied to the lawyer ahead of time. And then he would have lied again in, in front of the FBI with the lawyer there when the lawyer prompted him. I, I think I'm right on board with you, Hans. I mean, it doesn't make sense for Danchenko to tell the truth about pieces of it and then lie about other pieces. And I'm thinking specifically about Chuck Dolan. So, um, you know, he tells the FBI that certain pieces were embellished. And, um, you know, certain pieces, you know, came from Danchenko, but then still embellished, according to Danchenko. But then in later interviews, um, he obscures completely and lies completely about his relationship with Chuck Dolan and uh, sourcing from the dossier comes from Chuck Dolan. So it, it is really unusual um, to, to bear down on that so many times. Not really. I, I mean, it, it, it is not unusual at all to get admissions to things the witness thinks you already know and to deny things the witness thinks you don't know. If nobody had ever mentioned Chuck Dolan to him before, I mean, by the time he's interviewed, the Steele reports are already in the media. He can't really deny what's in them. And, and, and he can't deny that he is, you know, subsource one or prime subsource, whatever the designation was, primary subsource one. He can't deny any of those things because they've already been published. He's already been identified. The FBI knows who he is. The FBI knows he was working with Steele. So he can admit the things or he's, he has to. The imperative is to admit the things that the FBI knows. And because he's admitting that, 
to assume the FBI will accept at face value his denial about things that he doesn't know they know about until he's cornered and confronted, and then you get a grudging admission. This is this goes on. I mean, I, I did the same thing in drug cases for years. Like, I mean, dealing with lower level drug traffickers is like, you know, it, it's it, it just makes you want to pull your hair out because they only begin telling you what they think you already know. And they deny everything else when they know everything else. Um, there's the issue of um, just just I'm, I'm, I'm just open it up here. The 57 page EC, the one that Lindsey Graham released on July 17th, 2020. The only good thing that Lindsey Graham has ever done. And in it, I mean, there's, there's a comp- if you just search for attorney, right, there's a bunch of instances where the FBI kind of puts into the interview, oh, at this point, the attorney stopped and said something, and it happens again and again. And each time it's to prompt Danchenko to basically say something that they had prepared. Um, just pulling out one here that I remember kind of jumped out at me at the time was, um, remember Danchenko was suspected of being a Russian spy, and he definitely knew people from the Russian embassy who, was with, who were with Intel and so on. So he was asked about that with the, by the FBI, and he basically said, no, no, I know nothing. And then uh, the, 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 the attorney jumps in and says, oh, I just want to say uh, he doesn't know anything to his knowledge, <laughs> you know, just to make that clear. So... On that point, I mean, and that doesn't that doesn't in any way deflect from what Chip just said. But on that point, uh, it's very clear that they had discussed this issue that Danchenko had, in fact, had these contacts, and they kind of agreed to just say, "To my knowledge," or "To his knowledge," or whatever, in the interview, which then Danchenko must have forgotten to say, and then the attorney jumps in and says it. So again, that doesn't deflect from what Chip is saying, but I'm still very perplexed by the fact that. Um, they had obviously prepared this and they had obviously talked through what was going to be said and the attorney had to jump in on many, many occasions throughout this interview. And yet, some of these things are extremely dismissive of Steele. It's like basically the whole thing is bullshit. No, not, none of this ever happened. No, this is just gossip. This is just rumors, whatever. But on a few other points, Dolan is one that you just mentioned. There's a couple of others. Million is another one. Million is a huge one. He stuck to his guns, even though it was a total lie. And I can't help but think that the, someone egged him on there. That wasn't just him. On that point, Hans, like, yeah, I went back and read the EC after that because Richard Scott was in that meeting, this March 2017 meeting, and he was also in the Danchenko interviews. So I went back and read his um, uh, Senate Judiciary testimony, and he was basically just like, I don't remember the the attorney Shamel basically interrupting at all or having to do that. And I'm like, no, he definitely did it a decent amount of time. So I went back in the EC and you're like, you're exactly right. But um, in in Scott's testimony, he says, I don't remember the lawyer really having to interrupt at all. That the Danchenko was just basically going freely. I'm like, nah. Yeah. But also, <laughs> I thought it was interesting that it was even in that March 2017 meeting. <clears throat> which I guess we don't have all the notes, but it'd be interesting if they actually talked about. The crown source, basically. That 54-page EC is an embarrassment. I mean, that was a three-day interview. Now, I don't know if it was eight hours each day. I'm sure it wasn't. I'm sure it was a you know fraction of each day. But for that to produce a 54-page double-spaced EC, which had it been condensed into the form of a 302, might have been eight or ten pages, 
maybe, is just ridiculous. And it, and it shows that it's a work product of an analyst with a preconceived set of notions about, you know, what the evidence is, Brian Auden. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a work product that advanced his point of view. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it's a piece of garbage. An agent would have never written something like that. And the fact that it was left to an analyst to do it, I've been told, is not unusual on the intelligence side. It would never happen on the criminal side because that is a, 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 that would have been a testimonial document that, you know, had there been a need at some point for an agent to get on the stand and testify, you would have needed a 302 form memorializing the content of the interview. But because it was an intelligence debriefing, not part of a criminal investigation, it was memorialized in a perfunctory fashion with an EC by an analyst. It, it, is, it, is, it, it has limited utility from that point forward. Its, its utility is only for the benefit of the people who choose to read it. Um, and, and, you know, Brian Auten's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and that EC reflects it. Um, and I've also had somebody with a lot of experience on the intelligence side tell me that interview was not for the purposes of trying to unearth and, 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 and discover everything that Danchenko might have known. That interview was for the purpose of finding out from Danchenko if he had actually sourced to Steele the things that Steele claimed Danchenko sourced to him. Because if he had, whether it was true or not, setting aside for a moment the truth or falsity of Danchenko's information, if Steele had accurately reported what Danchenko told him, that made Steele reliable. He may have been reporting false information, but Steele didn't know that. And Steele accurately reported what Danchenko told him if Danchenko would confirm it. That would mean they wouldn't have to pull back the FISA application, which relied upon Steele. If Danchenko would have said, I never told Steele any of that, he made it all up, then they would have had to pull back the FISA application. Except yeah. that's what the EC says. Danchenko says over and over again, rumor, bar talk, uh, Steele has things in here that I didn't say. That, that, that's in there many times yeah no that's right i mean the yeah but hold on wait wait but the distinction is which parts of that are actually in the affidavit or is the stuff that he identifies in rumor and bar talk in the affidavit or not in the affidavit you have to say okay what did you actually tell him and then are those parts relied upon by the government in the affidavit so for example the sex tape is not in the affidavit What's in the affidavit, actually in the FISA application, is verbatim from uh, Memo 95, which talks about a Trump-Russia Trump -Russia conspiracy that's gone on for years uh, and then goes on to talk about Carter Page and his meeting in Moscow. Those are all sourced to million on a uh, that 
Tanchenko describes as one telephone call lasting about 10 minutes with somebody who didn't say who he was. Yeah, but 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 he admitted that he gave that information to Steele, and Steele reported it accurately. So, yeah. so that, that exercise that exercise was part of a source validation, with the source being validated being Steele, not Danchenko. So, so the point is, they don't. The FBI doesn't care if Danchenko's reliable or if he's a liar, they care if Steele is lying to the FBI. That's what they're there to find out. And down the line, they could care less or, or not so much. They could care less. They don't want to know. It's, they, won't, it's a, they won't use Danchenko again. They won't use Danchenko for anything. They couldn't use Danchenko in 2017 because he had already been deemed a likely Russian agent in 2009. But they'll and, continue and, to steal. That point being, it doesn't matter. They, they, yeah, they won't use Danchenko, but they weren't using Danchenko. They were using Steele, who was using Danchenko, and they were fine with that. Well, well, but they deactivated <laughs> Steele too after the after his after his contact with law enforcement, or with, after his contact with the media, which he didn't disclose, contrary to his instructions, he was deactivated as well. However, the affidavit went in before that. The affidavit went in when he was still deemed reliable. So now the question is, okay, we've deactivated him because of his media contacts. Do we also have to pull the affidavit? That's what interviewing Danchenko about was about. Do we have to pull Steele's or the affidavit that relies on Steele's information? Schiff, they didn't ask him the question of what he told Steele and when. Because if you read Danchenko's EC, he describes... One source, one subsource connected to Trump, million, that he ta- that he identified as the anonymous caller. He had one telephone call lasting ten minutes, but Steele has at least four different memos that identify that source as that particular source as the origin of what's in each of those four memos. And those took place over about a one-month period of time. So Danchenko's story doesn't match Steele's dossier, period. But but Danchenko, well, did you lie to Steele and tell him you talked to the guy four times? They didn't ask him that. I lost you there for a second. What's that? Oh, for some reason, my headphones cut out. I couldn't hear anything. Now, I, I understand the point. I, I understand that Steele's memos are inconsistent with Danchenko's explanation. The, but it's a narrower question than that. The question is, is the affidavit, which was submitted with information from Steele, is that specific information contradicted by Danchenko's interview? Are those lies by Steele, or did Danchenko tell him that, whether accurate or not? Well, they didn't ask the question. They, they, they literally did not ask that question. No, but that's the purpose of the exercise. They're, they're going through those details. They're not telling Danchenko that. 
no, you know, no. That's, my, they're, my they're point is score, they're keeping score on a separate piece of paper about what we need to validate. They didn't ask Danchenko what he told Steele. Tell us word for word what you told Steele and when you told it. They didn't ask him that question. Yeah, and I think that's that's the $64,000 question here or whatever the word is. That That's exactly the point. I mean, I've just been looking through it as we were talking here, and it, I, you're both right. I mean, on the one hand, Danchenko kind of disavows Steele and says, oh, that was just rumors and whatever. But Ship is also right because nothing here proves that Steele lied to the FBI explicitly either. So it's sort of it, – it, it, it's really kind of very smart what they did here. Looking at the, the EC, in view of what Chip just said, like they, they, their whole framework was, let's just get this guy to tell us stuff which isn't going to implicate Steele. If you read it that way, it's pretty well done. And I, I think Chip has got a really good point there. I think the, the biggest exemplar of uh, what King just said is exactly the point about million. They they ask him about million and meeting million and all that kind of stuff and it's basically all a big lie. But never once do they ask him what did you tell Steele about million? Nothing, nothing whatsoever on that. And that kind of is a huge giveaway. I mean, another point that we we haven't talked about much recently is the fact that Bill Priestap went to London to get additional information on Christopher Steele. And I think that was November, 2016. And, you know, they said, you know, he's known to embellish a little bit and, you know, you can't necessarily trust everything he's saying and, and things of that nature. And they basically provided it on the condition that uh, they didn't put it in official reports. But, you know, when you're going to the FISA court, and you're spying on American citizens, you have a duty to provide all information that you're in possession of. So it's kind of to the point that was made earlier. They, they didn't want to find out things that were against their objectives. I mean, there's a mountain of evidence saying, don't go any farther, and they continue to ignore it so that they could continue the investigation. Yeah, the, the decision by... The decision by Priestap to hold back that information when he's got a duty of candor because, you know, it was provided to him, you know, under a rule of non-disclosure. That puts him in a tough position, but I think his decision... I think his decision was the wrong one. And I suspect there are a lot of FBI personnel who would agree that that was not the right decision, that the, the, the objective for presenting Steele accurately overrode the concern about confidentiality. And you guys have anything else? I might take a couple more questions. You know, there's also the Wall Street Journal piece from today, which was... Um... Very, I mean, very interesting. I mean, I think, I think we all had slightly different takes. Um, I think we all agreed. It, it, these, these, just for everyone who hasn't seen that Wall Street Journal piece today, they basically talked to uh, Alexei Gubarev, the guy down in, Cypri- in, in Cyprus, 
about, you know, what happened with him and Dolan and Danchenko and whatever. And the bottom line is that he thinks he was shafted by Danchenko and that was kind of it. And then, you know, they, they, they kind of tell the whole story about Galkina and um, Gubarev and Danchenko. It's, it, it's kind of fairly interesting, but it's also kind of devoid of a couple of things. Uh, the one, um, one of the big ones is no Sergei whatsoever. I mean, how can you talk about any of this stuff, the steel dossier, without Sergei, who is like the source for its main uh, accusations? The other thing, and, and this is the one I wanted to focus on here, is strangely, the entire piece, I mean, I read it two or three times just because it just seems so odd. And I'm, I'm always suspicious of anything Wall Street Journal because of Mark Merrimont, you know, the guy who, who set up uh, uh, poor Sergey Million on the very day that Danchenko had to go into the FBI for his interview, as if to give the FBI sort of cover for what they were going to do. And then it turns out that Mark Merrimont is buddies with Peter Fritsch and Glenn Simpson, and they go back decades. So, you know, very that, every, every time I see Wall Street Journal, I'm like, okay. Anyway, bottom line is the entire piece, you can read it again and again and again, makes Steele look like the total victim here. Oh, poor Steele. You know, he just heard these stories and, you know, that's it. Poor Steele. And it's just, it's totally incredulous. Because let's face it, you're steel, you're supposedly this, this, this old Russia hand at MI6 and you know all this stuff and you've been to Moscow and you've represented the UK government and you've been a spy and all these things. And then some analyst out of Washington DC comes along and tells you all these stories <laughs> and he's got no access to anyone or anything. You don't, you're not going to believe this guy. I mean, to steal Danchenko was always just an alibi. He was just a cover. He was just a CYA guy. So, uh, you know, I, I thought the Wall Street Journal let steal off, and, and I, I think that was pretty much on purpose. That, that was my take as well, that it seemed like a whitewash of definitely steal and then fusion by, you know, inference. And even Danchenko came away looking not you know entirely clean but he would have looked a lot worse if the story was told in context and everything going on and they really threw galkina under the bus and that if you just read that story without knowing anything else you'd probably think there was this drunken crazy russian woman that was spinning all these stories and she was the nexus of all this um and that is you know i'm sure there, maybe there's some truth to that but that is just the, the very smallest part of the story I have a question. Um, what is your guys' sense about like Danchenko? Like, he's a Russian living in America, and he's indicted. How how scared? How scared is he really? If you could like look into his mind, like is just his thinking. Is this guy who's someone who was afraid for his position back in January 2017? Or was he pretty full of himself back then? He thought nothing could go wrong. Is he afraid of steel and and other people? Just a question. Uh, my take it's, is that um, it, it depends on the level of hubris. And his hubris tends to kind of sway and um, up and down. And certainly back then it seemed to be pretty high. I mean, you look at these... Um, you look at what came out today in the Wall Street Journal and compare that as well with some of the earlier stuff on Dolan. He was riding a wave there, you know. 
he was invited to all these high level conferences. He was invited to um, Moscow and, you know, hanging around these high level people and so on. And he was probably told (laughs) one of the things that, um, uh, you know, jumped out is uh, Fiona Hill, you know, our old friend Fiona Hill, when um, he needed to get in touch with someone in D.C. who, you know, who could sort of a power broker type, who did he call? Who did Danchenko call? He called Fiona Hill. And I think, you know, that was a source of a lot of both hubris and perhaps arrogance and, you know, cockiness, confidence, whatever. And he kind of just rode that wave. I think when the FBI well, arrived... Hans, he, he, he put Gubarev in the freaking dossier and then he, then he asked for money from him. Uh, that's yeah. how... That's yeah. how Dude, he sent him an invoice for fifteen hundred bucks. That's how, that's how invincible he thought he was. No, very much so. Uh, yeah, no, that's a really good point. <laughs> it was like eleven hundred and fifty-four bucks or whatever, with a sort of I, I, I really like you, and here's my invoice. <laughs> cheap as well, but anyway, um, no, I com- completely agree. I, I think when the FBI arrived, he panicked, but then he had. I mean, my totally personal assumption, and I have no evidence to prove it or whatever, it's just a a guess, is that the first person he called when the FBI arrived wasn't Steele, even though he did call Steele at some point, uh, and Steele then called Simpson. We kind of know that from the Bruce Orr texts, but I I think he called Dolan. Dolan was his sort of DC fixer kind of guy. He's like, you know, Dolan, what do I do? And that's an untold story as to kind of what happened there. The whole between January 12th, 13th, whenever the FBI showed up at Danchenko's doorstep and 24th when he was interviewed 12 days later, that, that lots of stuff happened in that time. And, you know, one day we'll find out what happened. So I, I think, you know, he was probably on a low then, oh shit, you know, but then, you know, he was being told by the lawyer and by all these other people, no, no, we got you here, you're fine. He was, the hubris went way up again. I mean, we all know his Twitter, right? Over the past few years, it was as if he didn't have a care in the world. It was just, it's astounding reading this guy's Twitter. Um, And then sometime recently, right, it it sort of dropped down through the floor and he stopped tweeting, probably because someone told him, no, 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 you're you're in real trouble here. You got to not do this. So anyway, I think the answer is it just goes up and down with him. Uh, you see in today's story that uh, Gubarev told, uh, said that Dolan told him that Danchenko likely, likely had compiled the dossier for Steele. Does that just not make you just wonder what's going on? I did oh, see that. It's pretty interesting. No, no, it, it, it did say that, and it does, because it suggests that Dolan knew more than, than he let on. Because we're talking right back in, in January of 2017. So if Dolan was just this innocent guy he were, who was just like there, how the hell would he, would he know all these things, right? You know, I noticed that there's not a date attached to that uh, claim. So maybe it wasn't said in an email. Maybe it was just said in person. But I'd like to know what time frame, like that Dolan admitted that like, oh, this guy no one's heard of. Denchenko is responsible. Yeah, no, I, I think it is January of 2017 from context. I mean, you're right. The, the Wall Street Journal could have generally, they could have done a much, much better job. And again, that's why I'm very suspicious of what they're really up to. They could have done a much better job in detailing what exactly they communicated with, with, with Gubarev. 
I don't have access to Gubarev. I can't email him or pick up the phone. I would love to. I would pick this guy's brains like no one's business. They had access and they didn't use it because all they came out with was these kinds of platitudes and, and, and there was no real juice to it. As you say, we don't even know the date. From context, it looks like he re So he fired, Gubarev fired Dolan on December 12th, uh, 2016. Soon after, um, <laughs> Gubarev appears in a dossier report <laughs> and is totally smeared. And then within a month, roughly, uh, and this is again from context, Gubarev rehires Dolan to fix the problems caused by the dossier caused by Dolan. Now, Dolan will say, no, 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 those weren't caused by me. Those were caused by Danchenko. But it, it's just such a weird arrangement. But yeah, no, in terms of the time frame, I'm pretty sure we're talking January of 2017 when he was rehired and when he said those things. But um, it's just very, very strange. And I really wish, and if they're listening, guys, Wall Street Journal, right, if you have access, you got to go and, and get the goods. And, uh, you know, they didn't well do that. It, well, think about it. If that context is January 2017 and Gubarev has this new information that Dolan said, oh, this guy, Igor, uh, brought all this bad stuff about you. Why did, did, did so Gubarev just sits on that for years and doesn't tell anybody? Or does someone come knocking on his door and says, we'd like to ask you a few questions? Like, that doesn't just sit in his head for five years, right? That's a good question. I mean... If he knew that Danchenko was the source of these malicious allegations against him, why didn't he take action? Well, that's why I'm skeptical of that, because why didn't he just go and... And if he knew it was Danchenko, why didn't he just go and sue Steele and Danchenko instead of BuzzFeed? There, there you go. Perfect. And he spent millions of dollars on that. And, I mean, we've all rifled through those those court filings, um, every last bit of them, and there was no mention of, of any of that. So it, it, it's all very, very strange. Uh, also, I, I, can I can I butt in? Like, remember in twenty twenty, I think it was July, Steele's deposition in U, in the UK. Uh, the uh, the attorneys for the other side mentioned uh, text messages, undated but likely November December twenty sixteen, where da uh, David Kramer of the McCain Institute, uh, the 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 lawyer, is reading out texts from Kramer to Steele, where Kramer is saying, oh, my guy, Alan, Alan Collison of the Wall Street Journal, who wrote today's story about Dolan, was, uh, uh, Alan Collison was running down uh, the Michael Cohen stuff in Prague, something about Israeli passports, and then, uh, uh, oh, there was, oh, Cyprus, they mentioned Cyprus. He says, oh, you know, uh, it's nothing like Moscow, I mean, going to Moscow, one thing, but going to Cyprus is going to the lion's den. And this is context. Uh, the, Alan Coulson doesn't want to go to Cyprus, if I'm reading the deposition correctly. And then if you, if you guys were on Twitter today, we talked about Cyprus a little bit. So, <sighs> No, you're right. It's, it is very strange. And the whole thing about Gubarev is so strange because he spent millions of dollars and then he didn't follow through for some reason. And so his explanation to the, in today's Wall Street Journal is like, oh, it's bad karma. I mean, bullshit. You don't spend five million bucks or whatever on legal fees and then say, oh, it's bad karma. I'm just not going to you know, deal with it, um, especially the Dolan stuff. I was just looking back at 
you know, my own kind of analysis back on Twitter, back when the whole Dolan thing came out. And I was like, oh, my God, this is a massive lawsuit, not only against Dolan, but his firm. Because now he's got this Dolan guy basically having two masters at the same time. Wow, fantastic for Gubarev. And he never sued. And now he says he doesn't want to sue because it's bad karma. It, yeah, it, it, it doesn't make sense. It just, I, I don't know what's up, what's up with that. But, um, you know, at the time when he was suing um, uh, Steele uh, in, in London, they made a lot of mistakes, those lawyers. And there was a lot of stuff they, they left on the, on the sort of, they left on the cutting, cutting room floor and, and didn't utilize. And I never understood that. Now, you know, maybe he just employs bad people. You know, let's face it. I mean, he employed Danchenko and Galkina and Dolan. So maybe that's the problem there. But, um, I mean, even now, it's still within the statute of limitations. That guy has a massive case against, as I said, not only Dolan, but Dolan's company. And one of the things uh, from the Wall Street Journal article, they asked Dolan for comment, and he said, I, uh, I have no comment while Danchenko is facing legal jeopardy, which I found was a kind of interesting way of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, you could read it both ways. But um, and I, I, I also think that it's probably bullshit that they, I think he was talking to them off the record because how else are you getting all these details? It wasn't Danchenko talking, it wasn't Galkina talking. So I think Dolan gave them a lot of this information uh, off the record and it seemed very self-serving. It seemed he was the only one that came out of this smelling even remotely, you know, pleasant. Yeah. Hey, Cody, did you have something? I was going to mention something, but it was probably not. I can't recall what it was. All righty. Do you guys have anything else? I might take a couple questions here. Alrighty. By the way, still no ruling in the record yeah. on the uh, privilege. That's weird. I, less than a week to go to trial now. It seems. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they he gave him a heads up privately or or something. It seems like you know. I don't know. It seems like the judge would rule on that. But it's only thirty-eight emails. Like you could read those in half an hour, and then. You know, type your type your memo up and you're done. Um, hey, General Logos, what's going on, man? Hey, uh, thanks for having me. I just want to say uh, thanks for having these chats. I really enjoy them. They're, they're very informative. Um, I have two questions. Um, first one, it it may already be known amongst everyone, uh, but um, I'm kind of fairly new to all of this. Uh, what exactly is the scope? For the investigation, like how how broad, how how you know how how far is he able to go? Um, and the second question is, what is everyone, the hosts and and some of the speakers there, what is everyone's kind of prediction uh, for what ultimately is going to um, happen? Um, it, it it just seems that you know it's. I mean, if you go back into Clinton's history, I mean, all the way back to, you know, Filegate, everything else, uh, just, it, it just seems like so many are untouchable and, 
And, you know, they may get a couple guys um, on some charges, may see some jail time. But ultimately, I, I, it, it, it just seems, if you think about the past, that um, most of it just really won't even be uh, covered in the media. So I'm just kind of curious what everyone's uh, pr- predictions are just for, uh, I don't know, just see if anyone has any uh, insight. Yeah, so as to your first question, as to the scope of John Durham, John Durham's authorized to look at basically any campaigns that were waged against um, anyone related to 2016. So any campaigns that were were active. Um, I forget the exact verbiage of the um, memo pointing him to special counsel, but he's basically got uh, authorization to look at um, any type of investigations connected to 2016 to include Robert Mueller. Um, obviously, the Hillary Clinton campaign uh, has some involvement there as well. Um, yeah, so I, it's a pretty broad scope. I, I'd have to pull up the letter to to take a look at that. Um, if anybody else wants to jump in on that or, or offer predictions, go ahead. Yeah, on the scope, uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, Barr, for... <laughs> You know, whatever reason, he made the scope really, really wide when he appointed uh, Durham, which is great. But let's look at the practicalities of it. He can't really, Durham can't really make use of that scope because he runs a tiny operation with a tiny budget. And I think this is an ongoing problem where he just doesn't have, and he's got like a handful of people. And Mueller had like 50 people. And, and it shows, you know, when you have to dig through these tons and tons of documents and find all these, like, look at what happened yesterday, right? Sussman's people found this one line of handwritten notes, which they think helped them. And, you know, probably helps them in some small way. Um, <laughs> the documents they released kind of help us more than them in terms of the wider narrative. But it, it's just you need, you just need the resources and Durham doesn't have them. So even though his... Uh, his scope is, is ginormous. It's anything that arises from the investigation. That, that's literally what it, what it says. It, says. it could be anything whatsoever. Is, um, is pra- in practical terms limited by what the, um, what the DOJ will allow. And we're still waiting for the, uh, his costs for the past six months, which haven't been published. They should be published any day now, so we'll see that soon. But every time they have been published, they've been like, 10% or 5%, just a tiny amount of what Mueller spent in the same period. In terms of predictions, my prediction remains no public people, just private people. And among the private people, he's going to go as high as Elias, maybe, if we're lucky. And that's it. Anybody else have predictions? <laughs> Nobody wants to follow Hans. I'll I'll throw it out there. I I uh, I'm much more aggressive in my predictions. I mean, I uh, I think multiple members of the Clinton campaign will probably be indicted. Um, Rodney Joffe's probably got some concerns tonight. Um, I don't know about Manos. He, I I can't make heads or tails of whether he's a a target or just a witness uh, based on the. Information we have, he was a witness as of last summer, but we don't know how that might have evolved. Um, I think there's going to be some nexus to DARPA 
which is going to get really interesting because that's that's the Department of Defense. So I, I don't know where that's going to lead. Um, there's going to be a hundred offshoots of this investigation. I mean, there's you know there's indications measurement systems, which is a company tied to Rodney Joffe and Raymond Salino. I mean, they they were collecting data and selling it to the government, but they also have a registration in Panama. So what are they really doing? Um, that could be kind of an offshoot investigation. I could see. Um, there's a there's a whole bunch of characters around that whole cell and, and all these different companies. Um, I, I don't know. I, I used to think there might be a few people from like the FBI and Obama administration or even the State Department that might get indicted. I have kind of lost confidence in that, but I, you know, I still point out, you know, John Ratcliffe is out there really regularly with information that he has seen. Uh, he doesn't seem to be hyping it. I mean, he seems to be really confident in what he's saying. I mean, he's seen some classified documents that give him some reason to believe there's going to be many more indictments. Um, I can't really dispute that. He, he has information that I, I don't have. So um, I don't know. I, I, I would say no. I would probably agree with Hans at this point. It'd probably be just private individuals. But, you know, John Ratcliffe has seen more information than both of us, and he's saying uh, government officials will be indicted. So I, I don't know. I'm going to add my prediction is that, like, I remember when the whole, like, Jaffe thing came out and the Sussman indictment, we were like, holy shit, you know, like, all this shit was happening. We had no idea. I feel like there's going to be something like that that happens, like, maybe on the government side or something that Durham dug into. And then something, like, just comes out of nowhere that we have no idea about. And then uh, something crazy happens. That's just going to be my optimistic prediction. But... That's just coming out of nowhere because I was caught so off guard by the whole Jaffe thing that I feel like something like that could happen again. I see no reason why that couldn't happen again. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you, Hans. And, and we still have so many questions around Stefan Helper. I mean, is that going to be a completely other cell? Like this Alpha Bank stuff was, was thought to be a really small piece of Russiagate. And then we we find out about Rodney Jaffe and... Manos and David and you know they're under federal contracts with DARPA and there's like a massive number of people tied into the cell. Um, is it going to be something like that with Stefan Halper or is he going to be found to have some connection to people that we already know about? I I don't know. Or is it going to be somebody completely new? I could be Black Ledger related. Could be any of that stuff. Yeah, that's a good point too. Who knows? Yeah, I think. <laughs> to to be a little bit more downbeat um historically the way these things kind of end is you might get somebody like Sussman maybe a Jaffe and then as it looks like things are going higher people start getting pardoned and a report comes out and it's just not in anybody's interest for you know all of these different entities to to all of a sudden be at each other's throats uh, with prison on the line. So it just gets shut down. And I, I think if it, you know, best case scenario is there's enough evidence that things go high enough that people have to get pardoned. And at least then you can go see, we had them. Here's the report. These people are guilty as hell, but I, you know, is Mark Elias going to be in a jail cell is, you know, uh, and certainly higher than that. I think it's just super unlikely. If, if Durham had the same, it just like a fraction of the resources that Mueller had, um, I have no doubt 
all these things plus 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 would be happening. I, I I do think it comes down to resources, and it's and now the resources are being really eaten up by this whole Sussman thing, which should be a slam dunk, really. And if that goddamn James Baker just handed over his text message, it could have been a slam dunk right from the get go. But um, Durham didn't get that until March, so he had to build his case around this this gigantic argument which we've all been you know going through whereas if uh, um, Baker had handed over the text message on time he could have just said well there's a text message that's the lie right there boom we don't have to discuss any of these other things so um, I mean you can all see I mean with all these filings and a Sunday filing yesterday and so on that eats up resources I mean that means that these Durham people are up like you know 18 hours a day working there aren't too many of them and it, it's it's not good so for all those reasons, I don't think it's, it's going to go very well. Look at uh, Kleinsmith. You know, that was a resource issue as well. Durham was kind of a, a bare bones uh, operation back then. And they messed up the Kleinsmith thing. They, they let the guy go because they didn't, they didn't understand the situation. They didn't know he, he, he lied about other things as well, especially the Russian-based thing, which was gigantic. It was huge. And, and they didn't even put it in the charging document. They didn't even put it anywhere. And, and to this day, I don't think it was some strategic decision or whatever, because it would never, ever came up. I, I just think they just never, they never saw it. They never considered it. They weren't reading our Twitter because I don't blame them. I mean, if it's just a couple of people working on this, you know, they're working on other things. So for all those reasons, I don't think we're going we're gonna to get all that. Um, that said, if there were resources or, you know, Durham, if you're listening or whatever, one really, really intriguing thing is the connection between Steele and Halper. You know, you guys mentioned Halper, and it's a really good point. It, we still don't have that connection. We still don't have a contact between those two. I mean, that would they're both based in, in the UK and so on. But other than that, it would just be so huge. And it's not just kind of uh, wishful thinking or whatever. Remember, Flynn was not part of this at all. Flynn had nothing to do with this at all. Right. They, they had this. They had Manafort. They had been looking at it for a long time. They had Page that they were looking at for a long time. Then Downer comes along and they got Papadopoulos. OK, no Flynn, no Flynn on the radar, nothing. Then suddenly, I think it was, don't quote me, but August 12th or August 11th, Steele's report of that day mentions Flynn. Guess what? The very next day, Halper goes to the FBI and mentions Flynn. You know, so you got within 24 hours, you got Steele and Halper bringing up Flynn out of nowhere. So to, to me, that's really probably the most intriguing, most kind of not understood issue in all of this. And if if Durham had the resources, it'd be very easy to figure this out. But I just look. Can he just send a team over to the UK? Can he do this? Can he do that? Uh, you know, I, he had to employ a firm. Just you know, for for listeners, right? He couldn't even get cooperation from anyone in the UK, so he had to employ a UK firm to start working for him, which is so weird. So, yeah, I, I just, I, I don't think we're going to get much out of it, unfortunately. You know, um, in Carter Page's, uh, his book, uh, Abuse and Power, he mentions how, like, at the end of March 2017, he was uh, ambush interviewed by... Uh, uh, Soma and another FBI uh, interviewer. And, in, and the first question they asked that day was uh, was about Michael Flynn, because the previous day, the Wall Street Journal uh, had published that Mike Flynn agrees to cooperate in exchange for immunity. 
And so Carter Page remarks that the FBI agents were very puzzled that when Carter Page said he had never spoken with Flynn ever. So it kind of tracks that there's this hidden connection that we don't yet know about. Don't know what it is. I've never been able to locate it. All right. Uh, do you guys have anything else? I might take a couple questions and then see where we're at. Hey, Larry, how's it going? Hey, Larry, how's it going? Hey, guys, good. Uh, good conversation again. Good stuff. This is my crack. I've uh, been hooked on it for five years. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, something good will start happening next week. Um, just first, first question was about what you were talking about there, what Hans said. Um, does it does it seem like Halper uh, told Steele, or Steele told Halper, or someone told Steele and Halper, coordinate? And did somebody try to keep them from knowing about each other, so that even they wouldn't know about each other, and they'd be feeding this stuff in? How does that work? Yeah, I mean, as it relates to the August period, so. The three investigations had opened on August 10th, officially as part of Crossfire Hurricane. They had it on Page, Manafort, and Papadopoulos. And then, as Hans said, um, you know, and we don't know the impetus for it. Um, maybe it was somebody in the Obama administration that still held the grudge against General Flynn. Um, you know, there's some interest. I I would have to assume in General Flynn at that point. And then, for whatever reason, they didn't have enough to open up a case on General Flynn. And then the very next day, they connect with Stefan Helper, who sure enough knows all the stuff about General Flynn. And um, within a couple of days, they're able to open up an official investigation into General Flynn. So um, I don't know if that answers your questions. I, I think I forgot the second part of what you had there. Well, I'm just wondering if somebody was telling them separately these these two steel and halper um and maybe even you know not wanting steel to know about halper do did steel know about halper or you know what i mean was somebody kind of directing a bunch of people who didn't even know about each other or? i think that's a really really good point i think that those are the two options here and they're both kind of equally intriguing so either you had steel and halper who knew each other Again, there's no, no, we don't have evidence for that, um, other than that they were, they both somehow knew to frame steel at exactly the same time, and they're both living in the UK, and they're both kind of in the same circles. But other than that, we don't know. Or as you say, and I think that's a really good point, is it that they were both fed by a third party the same information to release at the same point in time, and then you get to who's that third party? And you get to the whole point of why the hell did Halper set up this um, this meeting down in Cambridge with <laughs> Carter Page? I mean, he just suddenly shows up over there. So 
who, who told him to do that? So you got this guy, Stefan Strage, who we haven't talked about for probably a year or two. He, you remember he all, he showed up at on uh, Maria Bartiromo's show a couple of years back, and it was like I remember huge deal, yep. and all of a sudden it's like he's just gone. So um, no, I, I think that's a fantastic point. We just don't know which one of these two options it is, but or I guess the third option is it's just a total coincidence that these two guys, Halper and Steele. Uh, framed uh, Flynn at exactly the same time. So those are the three options, and we just don't know. Right. Like maybe they thought, you know, uh, they'd, they'd get a bite at the same, like they both independently thought that because they knew that Flynn, you know, was around and the Obama admin didn't like him or something. Yeah, it, no, of course, but it's just so just so weird how that would happen within 24 hours just as the fbi was looking to open an investigate it's just you know so i was kind of almost tongue-in-cheek on the third option there but um other than the third option it, it's equally intriguing it and it's equally bad whichever one it is right um another thing is just um I'm, I'm big into uh, neuroscience and I, I think the way it works with uh, this part i'm not so good at but you know, we have all these neuronal connections and what we do is we actually preen them, we trim them and that's how we get smarter. Like they, when they, when they start out, there's a whole bunch of connections and then we kind of preen them. And I need to do that with the whole Russiagate thing. Like, because there's so many storylines I've heard and I'd like to find out which ones of them I can like forget about. Like, you know, Bongino had all kinds of stories about Deripaska and he had stories about um, Stefan Halper and about Joseph Mifsud and all these storylines. And I'd like to figure out which ones of them have been debunked and all that. I'm just wondering where a good place to, go is for that like first like for example i heard one about uh the fbi went into deripaska's apartment and showed up out of the blue in the morning and were like trying to ask him about some russian or something and he laughed at them for thinking that you know for suggesting that this guy could be some russian agent like maybe it was carter page or something and and you know there's and then there's joseph mifsud was it was joseph mifsud everything about him completely made up by papadopoulos and sort of like the FBI kind of got Papadopoulos to say what they wanted. Like, did, did Papadopoulos make up everything about Mifsud? Like, it sounds to me like this corner thinks that, and I sort of am thinking it sounds like it's the, you know, the simplest solution is that Mifsud, you know, is just some guy who got framed. Like, uh, he, he's not some special double agent or anything. Is that is that one right? Yeah, you can forget about the Mifsud one. That's exactly right. So that's the one I will uh, <laughs> with, say with absolute 100% confidence. Mifsud had nothing to do with anything. He was just a a guy. And uh, yes, Papadopoulos framed him, but Papadopoulos was, was sort of set up by the FBI to frame him. So, you know, um, if it hadn't been for the FBI pressuring him uh, to, to come up with some name of some guy somewhere, he probably wouldn't have mentioned Mifsud. So, you know, there is that. But yeah, out of all those theories, I, the, Mifsud, just forget about him. That, 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 that just didn't happen. Um, the, the Derry Pasca stuff. I think Derry Pasca is is a huge enigma in all this, the, these things, um, especially because of the the, the connection with Steele. I, I just think we don't know enough about what exactly was going on there. Right, and then there's foreign governments. Is Italy involved? Is Australia involved? What was his downer at White Hat? Is he not? Like, I mean, was he? Um, like I know you, you like you, you point out that he didn't actually, you know, show up at the embassy, um, you know, the U.S. embassy or communicate with them or however that was, you know, the day after Trump uh, said, Russia, are you listening? It was actually um, or it was it was wait a minute. It was um, it was after. Yeah. Or no. Oh, it was what before. Was no, you're right. But it was before. 
But then, and I mean, there's just so many lines like this, and I'm trying to figure out like, who are the white hats. It'd be great if I could just see a list of like who the white hats are, who the who who are the you know the storylines that are debunked. Um, like it's just. Um, but anyways, the other, the other things, if I could just quickly get one more in here, um, just about the trial. So, and about the plea deal, I heard somebody talking about, uh, might've been you Hans, I can't remember, but it was about, um, you know, it looks like it's going to go the way of a plea deal. Like this is what all, like it happens in 90% of trials. Something I'm watching uh, Saul Goodman right now. So that's how much I know about laws just from watching Saul Goodman. Uh, it's like, you know, the, 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 the defense goes up to the prosecution. They try to come up with a plea. And then, um, you know, I don't know if the judge has to agree to it or whatever, all that. But how's that going to happen? Like, I mean, is that going to happen before even next week? Is that going to happen once they get a few days in? Do they go meet? Uh, does the judge put pressure on Durham to take the plea? Or does, like, how does that all work? Is that going to happen? And do we want that to happen? Like, I'm assuming we want a trial because we can have some more stuff come out at trial, some more, uh, you know, facts, and then it can like become a broader, you know, a part of the broader conspiracy. Like, uh, you know, wait, wait, is trial one week from tonight? Yes, it is. Sweet. Yeah. And I don't know if Hans or King, I don't know if you guys want to jump in on that, but I, I don't see a plea deal happening at this point. I mean, Sussman's latest you know, he's made his bed and he's going to lie in it. He's going to take this to trial and, he, you know, on this charged offense, even if he's found guilty, he's really not looking at any jail time. I mean, he might get a couple days in jail, uh, which would be a little bit unusual. Uh, I think just on, based on the charge, I think I, I don't expect any jail time. But, I mean, he's not looking at more than a month or two, um, even if he's convicted. So, uh, he doesn't have a whole lot to lose. I mean, he, you know, his law license is going to be a little bit of trouble. Um, but, you know, there's really no big incentive for him to make a plea deal because, um, you know, it's just, it's just bring the house right down on his head. I mean, um, if he he's found guilty, he's still going to have some allies on the, on the Democrat side. If he takes a plea deal and he has to give up everybody, you know, he's not going to have any friends anywhere. So, um, you know, especially this late in the game, I, I don't really see a plea deal getting done. Oh, so, so, so for a plea, for a plea deal, he has to give people up. He hasn't, he's not just, I mean, no, sorry, a pleading, like he can't just plead guilty. Oh, he can always plead guilty. Um, he can't get In exchange can't get for a, a lower sentence. He might get yeah. more time off if he gives up a couple of his friends. Yeah, Durham's not going to make a deal with him. He can always plead guilty, though. And I see we just had a couple of filings in the Sussman case. So I'm, I'm checking the docket right now. I mean, I, my main goal is obviously, I mean, everyone I think here is the same. I mean, we want to find out as much as possible about everything. And we want to have many of the bad guys Uh-oh. go to jail wait, wait, as wait. possible. Uh, never mind. We're good. Sorry. Go ahead. So we want, you know, Durham to be able to, uh, you know, catch as many bad guys as possible and uh i thought that maybe by this trial getting everything getting really fleshed out at this trial that might open up more doorways and it has the potential to and so i don't want to see i guess a plea uh, uh pleading guilty or anything but i guess that's not what I, I misunderstood someone was talking about a plea deal or or something then but um you know he can still charge the broader conspiracy that's total totally separate right if he has a conspiracy that he wants to allege uh or then he can then he can do that right charge a, a conspiracy right separate of this yeah Sussman's still at risk for his conspiracy charge 
right, the overarching uh, conspiracy uh, thing. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Yeah, well, thank you. He had that second part of the question. His first question was about um, like what storylines are true, who's white hat, who's black hat, is Downer a white hat? Anyone got a response to something like that? Uh, no, Downer is not a Downer is just a guy. And I think we've seen again with yesterday's notes that um, Struck misrepresented was what Downer actually said and what the, the situation Downer was in. Um, I mean, I, I don't think folks really understand. Downer is not just some guy. Downer, can, I, can I interrupt with a question yeah. about Downer? Sure, go ahead. The group he's a part of with all the other English blokes. Um, how do you guys pronounce that? Is it is it Hacklet? Is it Hacklet? I, I think it's Hacklet, yeah. That was that was my question. Right. The the thing about Downer is that um the uh it was all kind of happenstance how that how that whole thing happened. I guess first of all, Downer is not just some guy. Downer was the uh the foreign secretary or you know, uh, secretary of state um equivalent in Australia for like a decade or something. He's Downer is one of the most famous Australians and has been since the, like the 1980s. He's from a blue-blooded Australian family, which is a very rare kind of occurrence. That doesn't happen much having these kinds of people. He was the leader of the opposition. He almost became prime minister in the 1990s of Australia. Um, he then, uh, when John Howard became uh, prime minister, he again, you know, went into government. He ended up with the ambassadorship in London which is how he ended up meeting um, uh, George Papadopoulos. But even that was sort of semi-happenstance. We don't, <laughs> this is the point where I really wish George, if you're George, if you're listening, please just come clean and tell us the truth. Um, George went for uh, drinks with uh, Erica Thompson, who was ha Downer's assistant on May 6th, 2016. And for some reason, after those drinks, Erica decided on May 9th at the last moment, I, I have the email, I, I know the email, I, I, you know, I, I know exactly what it says, uh, to say, hey, George, uh, would you mind meeting my boss tomorrow? So we don't know exactly how that happened. So I guess there's some intrigue in that. But it wasn't set up that way. I mean, it happened because Erica was out drinking with George on May 6th. Now, one of the theories um, that we've had in the corner in the past is that George you know, said a lot of stupid things on May 6th. And uh, Erica thought Downer should hear those stupid things. So let's let's kind of rearrange the meeting with him. Or maybe George was just an impressive guy and, um, and, and you know, talked about old connections. And Erica thought, this is actually what her email says, that um, it would be great for both of them if they just met each other. So I think it was something pretty innocent. Uh, the meeting by both people, by, by both George and, and Downer's account, was completely innocent. Um, there was no drinking involved. It only lasted for an hour, and they just went their own ways and so on. And, of course, Downer never reported it. It wasn't a big deal. So I, I think that just Downer just got caught up in all the, the hoo-ha, the CNN, the Robbie Mook, all this bullshit in um, July of 2016 about the hack and this and that. He was like, oh, yeah, no, I did hear something about that. Of course, uh, at the time, and back in May, it, what, what George was talking about was just normal rumors that we'd all heard. And 
you know, down and just got the wrong end of the stick and, and said, oh, you know, I better tell my counterpart over at the U.S. Embassy. So he went over there and then and she wasn't actually there. So he had to talk to the, uh, the, the substitute person. And then, of course, Gina Halper showed up as well, which isn't helpful in, in terms of the narrative. But um, long story short, I don't think Alexander Downer was involved in any of these things. And other than everything I've already said, I think the fact that Peter Strzok keeps lying about what Alexander Downer says proves that Alexander is not the, uh, Downer is not the bad guy here. It's Peter Strzok who's the bad guy. Okay, uh, thanks for that, Hans. I'll just uh, shoot it over to Technofog. I'm just kidding. I, I know he doesn't talk. Yeah, I was just checking the docket, guys. So we have the proposed jury instructions from, looks like it's uh, the Sussman team that filed it. So that's uh, just kind of reading through that. It's kind of interesting. Um, <laughs> they're really they're really going for it with these jury instructions. I mean, they're, there's a couple pieces in here that are a bit pretty weird. Um, trying to trying to get past some pretty standard language, I think, and uh, trying to look past a few few issues. Like they don't want the indictment read; they want it summarized, which is which is fine. Um, but then, like on the question of materiality, uh, Sussman tries to limit it, and he tries to slip this in there. I think uh, that's. Uh, it goes to the question of whether to initiate an investigation, which is not, which is not the only component of why that statement is material. I mean, it's, you know, it's not just a question of whether you initiate an investigation, it's what steps do you take and what influence does that bear on the alpha bank investigation or even on Crossfire hurricane as a whole. I mean, if they came to, to knowledge that Clinton was trying to feed information to the FBI uh, at the same time as Christopher Steele, I mean, there is a certain likelihood that they might have had an opportunity to step back and, and ask questions about what Christopher Steele was doing too. So, uh, I don't, I don't see. I hope that one doesn't get get in there. Um, yeah, if you guys have anything else, go ahead. Otherwise, I might take a couple more questions and then wrap this one up. Hey, Will, adding you a speaker. Hopefully, maybe. Uh, might not be. Uh, we'll go to the mask. What's going on, man? Hey, how you doing? Hey, uh, just a quick thing. One of my, my only comment on Misfoot is that Comey in 2018 was still calling him a Russian spy. And then the other thing uh, about uh, and uh, oh oh is about that that Clinton campaign lawyer who's in charge of special projects. Uh, wasn't uh, uh, the bill that Sussman sent into the Clinton campaign titled Special Project?
believe it's called Confidential Project. Confidential Project. Oh, okay. All right. I just thought that it was Project in there, but I thought maybe that might be why Doran was calling her. Yeah, I have to do a little bit of research on Debbie Fine. I, I'm not too familiar with what her role really entailed and what the what the scope of it was. Yeah. Okay, I just uh, wanted to clarify that. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Um, really good point about the materiality. You you really put your finger right on it. Um, this this twenty one page jury instruction really comes down to to instruction number six. So Durham wants it to say a statement is material if it was capable of influencing the FBI, and I would completely agree with that from a just a statutory and case law point of view. Remember. Um, Flynn material, even though the FBI already knew the answer, is entirely theoretical. Anyway, so that's Durham's proposal. Sussman's proposal, as you just said, was um, it's material. It, to be material, the statement must be capable of influencing the FBI's decision whether to initiate an investigation, which is extremely detailed. So... I, you know, I just, th th this is my litmus test for Cooper. So far, I've given Cooper a pass, even though he's an Obama judge. I thought he's been um, more or less fair. He's certainly always had arguments. He, he's never just kind of done things. Um, whether he, wh whichever t materiality test he goes with, uh, not only tells us about where Cooper is, it's going to tell us the outcome of this case. Uh, I, I'd, I'd put money down on that right now as to whether if it's one or the other, one wins or the other wins. It's, it's, it's that bad. The difference is that huge. Again, just to, to reread that. Durham's proposal is a material statement is if it was capable of influencing the FBI. Okay? And I think that's exactly correct. Um, Sussman's test for materiality is the material statement must be capable of influencing the FBI's decision whether to initiate an investigation, which, you know, you can all hear right away, right? Goes right into the weeds of it. That's not materiality. But let's see what the, what the judge says. <laughs> hey, King, did you have any thoughts on that? I might have checked out. Um, yeah, I think that's exactly here I right. am. Yeah, I'm, yeah, there I you forgot, go. I forgot to turn my mic on. I'm surprised <laughs> that Sussman's team um, has stuck with that definition of materiality from day one, actually, and it's wrong. Legally, it's wrong. Uh, uh, Durham has briefed it. All the lawyers on Twitter have commented on it, and case law says. Uh, basically, Sussman is trying to carve up the definition of materiality to mean or to be limited to uh, whether or not a, an investigation is to be started or not. And that's way too narrow. Yeah, it's crazy, right? I mean, they, they bring this data to the FBI <laughs> And the FBI is going to look at it, and they're going to take some type of investigative steps. So, 
to initiate the investigation. Well, you'd have to argue anytime they have any type of information that seems credible on its face, the FBI is going to initiate an investigation. But uh, ultimately, I mean, this, the decisions are much more, much deeper than that. And they're much more, much broader as the government um, kind of asserts in their uh, element of materiality. So that I'm really surprised they, they went with that one, but that's just, you're not winning any any points, I think. Just trying to, I mean, that's that's too far. It's there's good lowering lowering where you're you're arguing your case, but that's like you're you're not going to get that through. There's just no way. Well, we don't know. I mean, that I, I hope not, Christopher Cooper. <laughs> but um, to me, this is the throughout the whole process so far. Again, I I'll, I repeat myself. Christopher Cooper has been okay. And surprisingly, okay, again, given that he's an Obama judge. And uh, I've had no issues with him. You know, he's, he's given a few, he's, he's uh, taken away a few. It's just sort of kind of normal. No, no big issues. This is his litmus test. This is the big one. Because this will decide how this whole thing turns out. And, of course, as, as King just said, and as you just said as well, this is the one that's either right or wrong legally. So we know whether he's really on the side of the law or whether he's on the side of, of Hillary Clinton. I think it's interesting, too, that he's probably already read the uh, privileged emails that he's making the ruling on and how that could sort of color his judgment going forward on just how much deference to give to uh, Sussman. And I mean, these are all lawyers that are sort of involved. And I think there's a natural tendency, especially, you know, he was former DOJ or whatever, that oh, we have to give these people, you know, due respect. And maybe if there's some stuff in these emails that's like, wow this is absolute bullshit. It might just, you know, affect the way he kind of rules going forward. Uh, let's see here. Will, I, I tried to add you a speaker a couple times. I'll, I'll do it again. I don't know if there's a technical issue. Um, I'll give that a second. Hey, Will, how's it going? Mike, there? Yeah, yeah. Okay, finally. Um, just want to ask a quick question. Um, what's the reason that Durham called it a joint venture, not a conspiracy? I think he's bringing a, a level of nuance to it in that it's not necessarily a criminal conspiracy. It's a joint venture, um, which is similar in that you have multiple parties that are working towards a common goal, uh, which is not necessarily a criminal conspiracy. Um, but because you have multiple parties working towards a common goal, he was making an effort to admit those third party statements and emails going back and forth, uh, from like Joffe to fusion GPS where Sussman was not necessarily CC'd on those, but because they were all working towards a common goal, uh, Sussman's actions had direct bearing on, and vice versa, uh, bearing on what Sussman was doing. And then Jerome was trying to weave that in to admit that into a false statement case. That's my take on it. And Hans or King or anybody else, if you have thoughts, go ahead. Yeah, the uh, um, rules of evidence uses the word conspiracy when it talks about uh, a certain exception to the hearsay rule. Uh, if you can establish that uh, 
the communications are in furtherance of a conspiracy. Uh, hearsay does not apply. However, case law, particularly in the D.C. Circuit, uh, has held that that word is harkens back to an old-fashioned use of the word, which means it's not necessarily a criminal conspiracy, but the equivalent of a joint venture. So they've slipped in the term joint venture to describe a non-criminal conspiracy uh, for which the hearsay rule does not apply. Um, One last thing. Um, I thought it was pretty intelligent of uh, George Papadopoulos to leave the 10 grand you know, behind and not carry it back to the United States. Thinking that Papadopoulos has had some, you know, previous, uh, you know, training in counterintelligence. Uh, does that anybody have any idea? Wasn't that debunked? I, I think the timing didn't right. I think that was some self-serving bullshit by Papadopoulos. The timing mm-hmm. didn't seem to, to, to line up. Okay. Okay. Got it. So from what I'm gathering, George seems to be, telling quite a few tall tales and he's he's pretty much uh, relegated to the to the back burner at this point uh, yeah no that's right so Papadopoulos got <laughs> poor Charles every time I hear this story I think of poor Charles Tarwell <laughs> Charles Tarwell is this guy in Israel who just tried to help him out he was, um, he was just desperate and he just needed money and Charles just gave him 10 grand and this was on June second or third or something like that of 2017. And then um, what happened was that uh, Papadopoulos then went over to uh, Greece and had a big party and celebrated and whatever. And then it came, you know, you went into July and, you know, the money was long gone. And by the end of July, so we're talking almost two months later, uh, Papadopoulos flew into Dulles and that's when he was arrested. Now, the whole story about this money I I, just, I I think he just made it up because the the Mueller's people just wanted him to make it up, and the the reason why wow. we know that is because Mueller's people put that in the indictment. They they put it in there. Well, it wasn't an indictment because he pleaded, but anyway, it was in there. He was like, oh, uh, right at the end, you can see it says, oh, and he was given ten thousand dollars by this mysterious person. So I think Mueller's people was just trying. We're just trying to raise innuendo with the media, and poor Charles Tawell kind of got dragged into all that. Okay, so George doesn't seem to be on the up and up at all. Uh, no. <laughs> okay. We we sure would love to look at his communications with Sergey Milion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So he might have been playing the other side or both sides. No, he was just a he's just a, a guy. Look, you're it's like a twenty eight year old guy who got get on gets onto a campaign a campaign. I mean. Come on, when does that ever happen? That only happened because the Trump campaign was such, campaign a, mess was such a mess at, <laughs> at the at the time. You know, no one would ever bring this guy. You know, he, what you remember what he had on his CV? He was on the UN uh, model United Nations <laughs> whatever right. team. I mean, just it was an absolute joke compared to all these other people. But you okay. know, he he got on there, and good good luck to him. I, I don't I don't blame him for that. And then he tried to monetize the, that <clears throat> position, and and he did that pretty well. Unfortunately, he kind of <laughs> overshot the goal at times. Then he got dragged into all this bullshit, and I don't think through any fault of his own. I think that's that's entirely down to the FBI just being crooks. And <laughs> then they squeezed him, and then he said stupid things as. 
Yeah. Uh, you know, when they showed up, you know, one, it says again in the, in the documents released yesterday that, that he lived in his mom's basement. It literally says that, right? So, <laughs> yeah, I saw that. <laughs> so <laughs> on, on no, uh, when was it? January 27th, the last day of the uh, Danchenko interview, I think, they, which no coincidence again. Because they dealt with that problem. Okay, we've done, we've, we've gotten, you know, we, we've moved past that now. Now we can go back to squeezing these other people. Uh, two agents show up at his mom's house and, you know, get him out of his basement. And he, he made that mistake that we're all told not to make, which is talk to these people. He said, oh, sure, I'll talk to you. Oh. And it was during that interview, which, by the way, is recorded. And George has the interview, but he's never released it. That would be very great if he could release it, you know. Uh, <laughs> If he did, unfortunately, I think it will probably have him say a bunch of stupid things. And again, I don't really blame him. You know, you, you, you stupidly go into these situations, you, you tell a few stories, and then, you know, you're in trouble, and then you tell a few more stories, and the trouble gets worse. So, like, I don't think he's a bad guy or whatever. He just got into a bunch of trouble. Uh, but to be fair, I think the trouble started on that day. I don't think he did anything wrong whatsoever up until that day. And the only thing he did wrong was to, to go with these people down to Chicago, downtown FBI, and talk to them. And that's when he said a couple of stupid things. Okay. Got it. Um, thanks, hey, wait a minute. I, I, can't, oh, I, I don't think I can let you get away with that there. Um, it, George Papadopoulos sold the whole book, I guess, then full of lies. And he's been all over Fox and everywhere telling the story about Mifsud nonstop. I mean, what the hell? Uh, yeah, th- those are all lies. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I think he's a social climber and just get a little bit of grifter in him. And it's just funny how the parallels between him and Danchenko, they're just both these young kind of, you know, not the brightest bulbs that are just willing to scrape by and do do anything to, you know, move up the ladder, make a buck, whatever. And Carter, Carter Page kind of comes off like that. I don't think he's a bad guy, but he's just like the term amiable dunce just kind of occurs to me that these guys are just not the sharpest knives in the drawer. And they're caught up in this thing that's way above their pay grade. Yeah, how how much is how much is Papadopoulos even hurt this corner? I don't know how much time you guys wasted on it. I don't claim to be part of this corner, but I mean, I've wasted a ton of time with Mifsud crap, and it's all well. Him like if he had stopped talking about it, you know, if he hadn't been selling it on Fox after that and everything, and you know, in his book, uh, just like like Dan Bongino wasted a huge amount of time on that, for example. Maybe that's why Bongino doesn't talk about the stuff anymore. Yeah. I don't know. Oh yeah, and and Chuck Ross. I mean, jeez, he still got that thing pinned to his his twitter feed if you go back to my twitter uh back when way way back when i was saying the guy's a grifter and don't believe any of this shit but look um as i said i I don't i don't have any grudges against the guy i mean yeah no it's pretty shitty if you bought the book i didn't buy the book but whatever you know and i didn't either (laughs) you know he made some money and he's still making money because he's still, you know, he retweets that conservative brief or whatever. I don't know what the deal is with that. A couple of people, there's a couple of people out there who, who retweet that. And I, it's, it's so shit that I have to assume that they get paid for retweeting it. Um, so I assume he's just got a couple of, of gigs and, you know, okay, yeah, good luck to him. Fine. You know, he, he also got a, a, a lovely wife out of all this. So, you know, it's Yeah. yeah. He has a hundred dollars of my money. <laughs> I, I for a stupid worthless book full of lies and his shitty, his shitty ass signature and it took forever to get it and good, the only thing I, good thing i could say is i never read it <laughs> poor george yeah poor i was george. giving him a lot more credit than he's worth all right, all right. well 
poor guy. Uh, I, I wish him well. Yeah, I really do. Yeah, same here. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Hi, Travis. Whatever your name is. All righty. Let's see. Um, let's take one more question, and then I'm going to end the chat after that. Let's go to... Let's go to Weak Cheeks. How's it going? Weak Cheeks, what's up? Oh, I gave you a shot. Weak Cheeks, come on, man. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not so technically happy. Mike, can you hear me now? Yeah, hey, how's it going? Perfect, thank you. I forgot to press the button, mic is on. Sorry about that. Hey, I had a question okay. for Hands and Kingmaker. I brought this up a few weeks ago, and because I think both of you are lawyers. What is a conspiracy to defraud the United States? And was the Clinton campaign and the FBI and many other people, would they be in a conspiracy to defraud the United States by saying that, uh, bringing all this up, you know, Russiagate, Basically, they were trying to take a president out of office and they were defrauding the whole United States by doing this. And would that be under that type of, uh, I, I guess, a federal statute, maybe? Let me take a shot at that. Um, that's very general. Uh, the few cases that are brought under that subsection just a conspiracy to defraud the united states basically consists of uh uh committing fraud against the u.s government so in in some material way to to, to that that causes the government uh, or an agency to uh, change its course uh corruptly so you, that there are elements of that here, particularly if you're looking at uh, uh, inside the government actors. Uh, as far as the Clinton campaign and outside actors, an easier claim to prove is uh, the thousand one case that uh, Durham has brought. Uh, the after the election, however, uh, I've always considered the defrauding the U.S. is a avenue that Durham could pursue, but we have no idea if that's where he's headed. The the, uh, the elements being what they have basically conspired to defraud the U.S. government by uh, corruptly influencing uh, the taking out of a president, say, fraudulently. I, I agree. I, I just wanted to know, I, I read Hans's stuff all the time, but I just wonder if he agreed with that too? Yeah, no, of course. No, I, I absolutely agree with that. The main problem is you need to show that these people knew 
what was going on in any conspiracy. That that's the overarching whatever the conspiracy is. And I, it, King, I think, has made this point many, many times. Having a conspiracy is not enough. You need a crime that attaches to the conspiracy, and you need to prove that all these people were on board with whatever it is that they were trying to do. So in this case, um, I, I think I said earlier, we. I don't think Durham can even prove at this point that Sussman knew that this data was fake. So if you can't prove that it was fake, it's very difficult to implicate him and, you know, a whole bunch of, maybe you can implicate Joffe or some of these other people. It's just very difficult to bring everyone under that umbrella. Of course, unless you have one of these people flip. And I think that's what kind of Durham was hoping for. And that may not have happened where one of these people says, okay, look, um, I know what happened. I was at the meeting. They all know. They all whatever. I don't think that happened. Yeah, he's got Laura Seagull, but she was very, very recalcitrant in the um, in the Alpha case. I mean, she pushed back like no one's business. So the fact she that goes she, back, she, there's an email that uh, uh, May 2016 email where she's talking about Alpha. You see that? Yeah, no, that's right. Um, it's... I mean, the fact that Durham has her on board is great, but um, it, she she might not reach high enough to be able to really unravel a big conspiracy. Yeah, I mean, she might get those people that I mentioned earlier, um, Sussman, Elias, uh, Fritch, Simpson. Those are kind of the ones that, that I think um, Durham is looking at. But anything beyond that, you have to prove. Look, look at Robbie Mook. Look at his, his affidavit that he submitted a couple of weeks back. He was like, well... Uh, everything was done above board as far as I knew or as far as I was told. So he, he's going to hide behind that. Um, uh, Sullivan probably going to do the same thing. You know, uh, Podesta did the same thing. Uh, he submitted something similar to that. So that, that that's always the problem with, with trying to prove anything like that. And then uh, moving on to, to King's point where you go further, where you defraud the United States in terms of you know, trying to take out a president, you know, the, the whole the whole nine yards kind of thing. It's it's just it, then at that point it, you got an intermingling of the FBI and the Clinton campaign. That's the problem at that point. That's a huge problem for Durham, not only in terms of evidentiary and so on, just politically, because suddenly he has to go against Comey and McCabe and all those people. I mean, right now he's really focused on the private people. If he just focuses on oh these people brought fake information into the FBI, therefore. It was a conspiracy to defraud the FBI and so on. Okay, you know, that is, I, I think it's a long shot, but it's it's doable. But if you then go the whole nine yards and say they wanted to take out Trump, well, now you're into 2017. And you're just on the basis of what we found out yesterday with these, these handwritten notes, you are then bringing in the FBI. So then everyone's involved. And I just think that's too that that's just a step too far for Durham to prove that. I, I think that did actually happen. I have no doubt that happened. I mean, the, in, in my view, the notes yesterday that proved that, that 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 happened because the FBI people went into the DOJ on 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 March sixth and basically lied their asses off. Yeah, no, this Carter Page thing. You know what they said? They said, yeah, the, the Pfizer's have been extremely fruitful. No, they haven't been fruitful. There was nothing there. They talked about Papadopoulos, like about he was paid by the campaign, which is bullshit, and all these other things. They just lied their asses off to the DOJ because they wanted to keep the thing going after Trump tweeted out that, that he'd been spied on. That, that was the context for that. 
But, you know, I don't see Durham going after these people, unfortunately. I, I just want to say one last thing, because uh, I think it was uh, March, March of 2017, allegedly uh, the FBI knew Danchenko's uh, steel report, uh, reporting to the steel report was all nonsense. And there's a whole lot of stuff that wasn't working out for the FBI. But they met, but why didn't, why didn't, uh, why didn't, what's his name? Uh, when Christopher Ray showed up, why didn't they come out and say that we have proof all this is, is baloney, but instead it kept going on for years with Mueller and this whole thing. That's what I'm saying, the conspiracy. In other words, they, they, they had proof. They never told the public that all this was BS with Danchenko and I can't remember all the rest of it. And, and none of this really was true, but they kept it going for years. That's part of the conspiracy, wouldn't you say? Of course, it, it frustrates frustrates me to no end. It's it's in, it's incredibly it's horrible. Um, Christopher Ray goes back a long way with this is the thing. There's, there was a book written about those three people: Mueller, Comey, and Ray. There's a literal book about these three guys, and it details their friendship. And the book was written, and don't quote me, like 2010, 2011. Anyway, before Ray was appointed, way before Ray was appointed. So again, I ask, who the hell was doing the, uh, the vetting for Trump? Like, I, I heard that it was Chris Christie who recommended guy, that guy. Okay, that in itself is like a red flag. Whatever Chris Christie says, don't do it. Okay, that, that's sort of, that should be the <laughs> default position. But even if he says something... Why the hell don't you have some guy checking up on whether this is actually a good guy? And you've got a book out there that talks about all these people being best friends. So, you know, I, I never understood that. And I, I think that the answer is simply that Ray would never, ever throw his friends Comey and Mueller under the bus. Oh, I agree with you. But, I, but, but at the very beginning, when they picked Mueller, when they picked Mueller as the special counsel and he was good friends with Comey, when he was friends with the star witness Comey, you knew the whole thing wasn't on the up and up because he should have been picked. Let me jump in a minute. Uh, when you're talking about a conspiracy to defraud the U.S., that as a crime, uh, there's some elements here that are far different than what you see in ordinary everyday politics with good guys, bad guys, people talking bad against each other, uh, politicians shading the truth uh, to the public. An active scheme to defraud the U.S. has as its aim to obstruct or, or impair the ability of some governmental function to operate as it's lawfully set up to do. So, and, and fraud means by deception, by uh, some means to conceal what you're doing with the aim to obstruct the function of some governmental operation. Uh, so it's, it's a very precise criminal act that all these, the, the way we like to talk about politicians doesn't really apply. Uh, so when you talk about Comey doing something, you're going to have to prove that he made some act, some uh, uh, committed some 
overt act in furtherance of a design to impair the function of a governmental agency. So if he creates a bunch of documents and gives them to his uh, subordinates at the FBI and sends them off on a wild goose chase, knowing that they're going off on a wild goose chase, uh, that could be uh, that could in involve defrauding the U.S. And if it's a conspiracy to do that, you have a conspiracy to defraud the United States. Uh, right, but I agree with you. You have to point to something specific. That they well, the, the, the conspiracy was is they were the, the, the Clinton people and the uh, the FBI and and the DOJ people. They were trying to nullify the election. That that's just that's too general. Uh, that's too general. That's just too general. You have to ha you have to get down to some specific series of overt acts that's designed to stop the government from functioning or obstruct the government from functioning. You don't yeah. think this? You, you don't think this this obstructed the government from functioning for three years? Uh, <laughs> That happens all the time. I mean, the not, Congress not, not 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 like not like this with with every day, the president could be arrested any moment. It it, it does <laughs> happen all the time. You have uh, agencies wow. that that essentially are grind to a halt because of debates going on forever. Uh, uh, you know, obstructionist tactics, and but those are not concealed. They're not deceitful. Uh, they're not, they don't rise to the level of criminal activity. Uh, you have to get something specific. I, I always point to, on this point, uh, the falsification uh, or the, the misleading pleadings filed in the FISA court to renew the page warrant. That that's one obstruction of justice, but two, you it could rise to the level of a conspiracy to defraud the U.S. because there's deception. It's designed to create a, a governmental agency or a court in that case uh, that otherwise would not have happened but for a fraud. So that's you have to put it down. Bring it down to uh, the level of specific criminal conduct designed to put a big wrench into the government and do it deceptively. All righty. Um, I think I'm going to go ahead and end it here. Um, one thing I'd point out, I mean, I, I would just remind everybody to keep in mind David Dagan um, with him getting immunity I mean that is not relevant to the Sussman case so you know there is something that John Durham was working towards and he's not somebody that just gives out immunity so um, whatever piece of information David Dagan had is going to be significant and that's going to be used somewhere um, so I would expect there to be another indictment or two uh, that come and uh, I think whenever we get that, that's going to be uh, extremely informative and we're going to learn 
probably more in the next indictment. Uh, hopefully, it's another speaking indictment, but we're probably going to learn more in that than we have uh, throughout the entirety of, of Russiagate, which is saying a lot now. So um, we'll definitely try to continue doing shows. Uh, obviously, the trial starts next week. We are not going to get audio of that, but we're going to get probably some stories and some transcripts, and we should be able to kind of be able to talk through it. So uh, as best as we can, we'll try to try to do a few shows. And um, I don't know what we'll do the rest of this week. I don't know if we'll do another show or not, but um, appreciate everybody coming on tonight. And we will schedule something, I'm sure, in the future. So uh, thank you to everybody for coming tonight. Thank you to all of our speakers. And I am going to end it here. All right. Have a good night, guys.